0: Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey,
1: it's Canzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go.
2: Initialize sequence. Welcome to The
1: Baldcast.
2: A production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth.
1: Well, I reached out to a source this morning at Washington State. And I'm just going to tell you how this kind of unfolded. I talked to a lot of athletic directors. I talked to a couple of conference commissioners, of course, consultants, some media world people, a lot of coaches. But I reached out to somebody at Washington State this morning because I was, I was looking this morning to write a feel-good story. And I heard of a couple of stories at Washington State. that involve One of them involves a retiring football coach who's 70 years old, and I thought, you know, it might be interesting to write about the life of a coach. And while I was on the phone with a football source at Washington State, I asked, you know, how is your non-conference schedule coming together? And the source told me, well, it looks like, uh, you know, things are getting formalized. And I said, you know, I knew that Texas Tech was trying to possibly move its game against Oregon scheduled for next season and instead of playing Oregon would play Washington State but I didn't know anything was finalized and so I brought that up to the source at Washington State who said huh you know that which told me I needed to make some other calls so I subsequently got off the phone reached out to uh, sources in the Mountain West Conference sources here in the state of Oregon athletic directors, coaches, and what I pieced together and reported at com this morning is that the Civil War football game is on for 2024. Oregon and Oregon State are finalizing the deal, and when I say finalizing, I'm using air quotes because it's been called behind the scenes Operation Preserve the Civil War, and it's nearing completion. Rivalry game will continue in 2024, Multiple sources telling me that part of Oregon State's schedule for 2024 is done. Oregon State uh, would not confirm that. Scott Barnes, the athletic director, declined comment today, but I am told that that part of the deal is done. Oregon State is working on the rest of its schedule and will announce it in one piece, of course, because you want to see the ink dry. But Oregon and Oregon State are going to play. The Ducks are going to travel to Corvallis and play the Beavers on September 14th next season. This will continue the rivalry that started in 1894, home-and-home alternating series. In 2025, Oregon will host Oregon State at Autzen Stadium. Now, I like that these schools are going to play each other, but I want your phone calls. Do you like this? Do you see the mutual benefit of Oregon and Oregon State continuing the rivalry? From Oregon State's standpoint, It needs a power four conference home game. And from Oregon's standpoint, Oregon needs a home opponent every other year, especially in the odd-numbered years, 2025, 2027, 2029, because the Big Ten Conference plays a nine-game conference schedule, and in those odd-numbered years, Oregon's only going to have four conference home games. Now, People have raised objections, Duck fans in particular have said, hey, what about, you know, we're giving up a Texas Tech home game in exchange for going on the road to Oregon State. And that is true, but there are some ancillary benefits to Oregon here. Oregon uh, will not pay any travel costs for Oregon State. It, In fact, it won't have any travel costs when it travels the 44 miles in those even-numbered years to go to Research Stadium and play. It's a guaranteed sellout. From a season ticket standpoint, it's a no-brainer for Oregon. It's a better draw than Texas Tech having the Beavers at home in odd-numbers years. Now, it took a lot of work. There were multiple schools involved. I mentioned Texas Tech, for example. Red Raiders were supposed to play at Oregon on September 7th. They're instead going to play at Washington State on that same day. Now, Washington State was previously scheduled on September 7th to be at San Diego State, and so Aztec fans reached out to me. They're like, what's happening to our game? Don't worry. That game's still going to happen. It's just going to happen later in the season for Washington State. They'll still go to San Diego State, but Washington State will host Texas Tech on September 7th. Boise State also a helper here. Boise State was Oregon's originally scheduled opponent on the 14th of September. The Broncos... Will instead go to Eugene on the seventh, where Texas Tech was supposed to be, and Boise State uh, was, you know, was originally scheduled to play at Oregon State on the seventh, but they will instead go to Oregon. So a lot of trading, horse trading, going on. They are making, trying to make sure that this would materialize, and we're starting to get an idea of, you know, Oregon's home schedule for next season: seven opponents at home. Uh, they got the Kauai game on the road, and uh, Oregon State's schedule for next season, seven opponents at home as well. That is, uh, that is a rarity for Oregon State. They don't normally get seven home games in a season. And as I look at Oregon State's schedule for next football season, uh, I am told Oregon State is also negotiating with Cal for a home-and-home home series that would begin next season as well. So it'll be Cal, it'll be Washington State. They'll play a game home or away against Washington State. They will uh, play the six Mountain West Conference games. They'll play Oregon. They've already got Purdue and uh, Idaho State. And there is one other powerful opponent that is believed to be either the University of Virginia or Notre Dame that Oregon State is in entertaining right now. So keep an eye on that. That is the only mystery. Game number 12 for Oregon State, I think it's going to be Virginia, but there's some whispers about Notre Dame, who Oregon State is playing in the Sun Bowl. Would they be going to South Bend? Probably. Would they be going to uh, Virginia's campus? Yes, probably. But a source familiar with the negotiations told me that Oregon State is focused on seven getting seven home games. Why? Because you can package those and you can sell them to a meteorites partner. You can try to maximize that. Um, you know, we all know the Apple Cup's continuing, but now it appears that this is done. The Civil War it will be continuing as well. Um, I had, uh, you know, a lot of people nationally, a lot of national media members who reached out to me, said, hey, I, I love this. I love that they're playing this game. I think there's a-, a real sentimental feel for the rivalries and the sort of the progression of college football, the rivalries being destroyed and lost. I, I know that Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are still trying to get together and play a game, but this shows you. That if you have the will to put together a home and home series with your rival, you can find a way. Now, Scott Van Pelt, who's on ESPN, he he slid into my DMs and he said to me, "Hey, this is going to be my big thing today." You know, he does the uh, he does the uh, the one big thing segment uh, every day on uh, on uh, his show on ESPN, and he just messaged me and he said, "This is going to be my one big thing." tonight. So those of you tuning in to Scott Van Pelt's show tonight, you'll get to see him talk about why the Civil War is important. Why it is important that they play that game. Uh, from Oregon State and Oregon standpoint, it's money, right? It comes back to money. Oregon likes the idea of having that game on the schedule and those in those odd numbers years for the home season ticket sales. It really balances their schedule out, gives them a guaranteed sellout for uh, a non-conference window that normally is a little tricky to try to sell tickets into. And for Oregon State's standpoint, gives them a quality opponent at home. That they can go out now and they can go to Fox, they can go to CBS, they can go to uh, you know ESPN and ABC and they can say, hey, we've got this Oregon game, do you want to buy it? And so I think there's a win-win for the schools from a monetary standpoint, but for me it's more about the history of the Civil War football game. It's about Rich Brooks. It's about Mike Riley versus Chip Kelly. It's about, you know, 1898, Oregon State played without a coach. And I had someone suggest today that in 2023, Oregon State might have played without a coach. It's about, the, uh, it's about the fights that these teams have had over the years. It's about the love-hate relationship from two schools that are 44 miles apart. A lot of intangibles at work in this rivalry game. I'm glad it's continuing. I want to hear from you. 503 503- is the phone number. Steven, what do you make of it?
3: Yeah, I I think it's great that these two teams are going to play each other. Um, When you talk about is it mutually beneficial for both schools, I don't know that it's beneficial for Oregon as much as it is for Oregon State. I don't think, and you mentioned this, you talk about Oregon State's schedule and how they're playing musical chairs, basically, and they're getting new schools in, they're getting schools out. I think Oregon can do the same thing, and I understand the travel costs. You know, They can find a school on the West Coast that they can play that wouldn't be as much of a travel um then it would be a, a tough game to go to Corvallis against your rival. So I don't think it necessarily— So you
1: see it as a hard
3: game for Oregon. I do, just because it is that rivalry game, and now the fact that Oregon State is not in the Power Four conferences, there's going to be a chip on the shoulder. There already was a chip on the shoulder for people in Corvallis and Oregon State against Oregon. I think that that chip is just going to be even bigger now. And then when you're Oregon, you're looking at your schedule. You're playing Ohio State. You're playing Michigan. You're playing Penn State. Oh, we play Oregon State. Is it is it that big of a game, or do we really have to get up— So— I don't know how beneficial it is for Oregon, but I think for Oregon State, you hit it right on the head. Super beneficial for them. They are trying to keep their schedule as tough as possible. And if this is the type of schedule that they can get, you know, the next two, three years, they're going to stay relevant as long as they can win some football games with these type of schedules. They're playing these teams. They're playing teams like Virginia or Notre Dame, and they play at Oregon. or they get Oregon to come to Corvallis, I think that is how you stay in the light and you have a chance to get to one of those Power Four conferences when the next— Uh, you know, the scene of conference realignment happens, which I'm assuming it will. At some point, there's going to be another thing in conference realignment. So I think it's really beneficial for Oregon State. I understand why Oregon's doing it as well. It looks good optically for everybody in the state of Oregon. I'm having fun with it. That'd be great to see. I was afraid that if they don't play this game, it'll be harder to restart the game than it would be just to continue it. So totally. it's totally a great It's a great move, I think, for Oregon just to do this optically. It's fun for the fans. It's fun for the state. So I am all on board uh, with Oregon and Oregon State continue this rivalry.
1: I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. I'll push back a little bit on, you know, is it good for Oregon, good for Oregon State? I agree with uh, all the Oregon State points. I think we see that the same way, but I, I do think there's a benefit to Oregon here. You know, when Oregon has Texas Tech or an opponent in the future coming into Autzen Stadium, it's going to have to pay for that game. Or it's going to have to trade, hey, we'll go on the road every other year. They won't have to do this now. And because of the Big Ten schedule that goes five home games in one year, four home games the next, it's a nine-game schedule, Um, Oregon can now balance the schedule out. And I frankly just think Oregon State, you know, I was at the – last 20 Civil War football games, Oregon State's a good draw at, at Autzen Stadium. It's it's a guaranteed sellout in the early part of the season. And, you know, I, I was looking around Autzen Stadium this year, and even though the game was getting away from Oregon State, Oregon was clearly the better team, I, I kept thinking to myself, like, this is a really lucrative event for whoever's hosting. And when you think about the travel costs in football, you know, I broke down the travel costs for an away game last season – it was about $300,000 for the team to go on the road. And so when you see sometimes, you know, a team getting two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars 300000 to go play a game, they're just getting travel costs. And so Oregon saves itself a couple hundred thousand dollars. It does the right thing by playing its rival. It guarantees that every other year, you know, it'd be difficult to to, I think, find an opponent who would go home and home and home and home forever in perpetuity. But you can do that with Oregon State, and then you don't, you know, you kind of just go, okay, that's our schedule. We're gonna play every other year. We're gonna play five Big Ten home games, and in those years, we'll be at Research Stadium. And when we play four, we got the Beavers at home. And now Oregon just needs to go out and fill two other slots in their, you know, non-conference schedule. So I think it's, I think it's a really good opportunity for Oregon. I do know that there's another piece to this that I can't yet talk about. I don't have it totally confirmed. But there is a piece to this in 2025 that is also advantageous to Oregon. And I can talk about it in the coming days, but there's another domino. And and these things are so tricky, as I was trying to write today. So I was trying to explain how Texas Tech and Boise State are helping. It's really complicated to explain to somebody. And you have to go, literally go, okay, Boise State was supposed to play. Let me just lay this out. Like, Boise State was supposed to play Oregon on September 14th. At Autzen Stadium. Now, the Broncos are not going to play on the 14th. They're going to play on the 7th. But Boise State was supposed to play at uh, at home against Oregon State on the 7th. So what's going to happen there? And so what's happening there is Boise State saying, okay, we'll get Oregon State, but we'll get them later in the year as part of the Mountain West Conference alliance and the partnership for scheduling. So Oregon State's still going to go to Boise, and Boise State's still going to play the Ducks. They're just going to be playing them on different dates so that's how Boise State is a helper here. And Texas Tech I think was really happy probably to get out of having to go to Autson Stadium to complete that home and home with the Ducks. I think they go instead to Pullman, probably get a game they think they can win. And I'm as all of this is being talked about, you know, I'm thinking, you know, is Texas Tech telling us that a win over Washington State is still going to be a quality win? And is Oregon telling us that a win over Oregon State is still going to be a quality win? I think some of that is buried in this conversation. I think those schools are still looking at Washington State and Oregon State as better than a Mountain West Conference opponent. Let's go to the phone lines. Casey's in Beaverton. I got a line open four one seven seventy five seventy five in the five zero three area code. Casey, how do you see it?
0: Well, um, I'm I'm a diehard Beaver, and and I've been calling your show for several actually about a year and a half about this and I still view this as uh, a rivalry that should be dead and should not be continued and I do think it's I've got to believe it's almost entirely a PR thing on the part of U of O and I don't see any truly tangible uh, value to uh, OSU sure there's some money but they're going to have a much tighter budget regardless of how you slice it so I say cut it off I called them uh, and you, dubbed in particular, cancer about a year and a half ago, right after USC and, and UCLA left, and I think that's been proven correct. They were definitely the linchpins in the collapse of the Pac-12, ultimately. I know there are other yeah. factors. So sure. I don't know what I again. And if, yeah. and if we're actually I've, I've already gone on record with my family, I'm canceling my season tickets.
1: Yeah. All right, so I appreciate the call. I do see the tangible benefit, but I also know a lot of people like Casey are upset. From Oregon State's standpoint, Oregon State's going to have a very difficult time to get power four conference opponents to come to Reeser Stadium. Okay, Who's going to want to come in there and play an Oregon State team that is well-funded, going to be funded better than a Mountain West or a Group of Five school? It's it's going to be a tough task over the years. Maybe not next year with a brand-new first-year head coach, but that's going to be a tough task. Further, if you're Oregon State, you need something to give your fans to draw and sell your season ticket package. you got Purdue at home. Looks like you're going to get Cal. You may have Washington State. You're going to have three Mountain West Conference opponents at Reeser Stadium. And, you know, you're going to have an opportunity now with Oregon to beef up that home schedule, get seven home games, and here's the tangible benefit. You go out to your TV partners and you say, hey, we've got seven games. Do you want to buy them? Washington State's got six games. You want to buy them. Do you bundle that? I don't know. Do you sell it a la carte? I don't know. But I am told that Oregon State's got a media partner on the line. I don't know if that's been finalized, but somebody's interested in these games, and you got to be real. Like, all of the feelings, the bad feelings that are involved, everything, you know, I get it. I totally get it. I'm disappointed that the conference is breaking up. It breaks my heart. But I'm looking at it from a logical standpoint and going, hey, there's going to be value in selling a TV game it, you know, because Oregon State will have the rights to that game in every even-numbered year. There's going to be value there that Oregon State can turn and monetize. And if Oregon State wants to stay afloat for the next two years, this is how you do it.
3: It, it seems to me, John, that the only reason why an Oregon State fan wouldn't want to play Oregon is because they're upset with how everything went down and they feel it was Oregon's fault. And, I, and like you said, I get that. I understand that. But, totally. if but if you're Oregon State, I think you're right. you got to somehow stay relevant. And playing Oregon, no matter what you feel about them, if you felt like they are the reason the Pac-12 has gone away, you're the reason you've been left out if you're an Oregon State fan, playing teams like Oregon, playing teams like Washington, playing teams that are going to be in the Big Ten and the ACC and the SEC, don't, that's how you stay relevant. It's not by playing the Mountain West schools. So I understand why Oregon State fans would be mad But I just think at the end of the day, if you're trying to get back to where you want to be, and that's in one of the Power Four conferences, you have to play these teams, and you have to win some of these games. And so I think getting Oregon at home in Corvallis, that's how you do it. It's going to be a tough ask to go on the road and win that game. But you know what? Crazy things happen at Reacher Stadium. We've seen how good those fans are. We've seen how good the team plays there. you got to get those games at Reacher Stadium. So if Oregon agrees to come, you got to let them come in there because that's how you stay
1: relevant. You stay relevant, you make more money, but I get the feelings. I get the bad feelings on both sides. Bradley's in Lake Oswego. Bradley, how are you?
4: Hey, John, thanks for this topic. Uh, Great one for today. Yeah, I'm coming at it from just a fan only. I know there's a whole business side of things, so that comes into play, of course. And I also, like you, am very disappointed that we're even having this conversation because I think part of my answer is the relevancy of why I probably wouldn't enjoy um, this, you know, this decision is, I like competition. And unfortunately, I think Oregon State's going to be going in a different direction than Oregon. And I also think fans know that. And I think that frustrates them. So why would you want to go watch, in essence, a Mountain West plus team take on a, you know, big X team um, that have different financial, you know, uh, value to their organization or the whatever we want to call it. So I I just I think it's an unfortunate situation. I think they should just cut losses and move in different directions. Um, and maybe if the you know the NCAA finally figures this out and changes uh, direction again, and we see a Pac X come back, by all means, let's put them on level playing fields. But to me, it's like bringing another team in that's in a lower subdivision. It's just called an easy win, and I don't think Oregon fans will like that. So that's my take.
1: Appreciate the call, Bradley. Colorado and Colorado State. Great example. Played a fantastic football game this season. And I know Colorado's in a rebuild, but it was a compelling game. The lawmakers in the state of Colorado have mandated that Colorado and Colorado State have to play each other. They continue that rivalry because it's financially beneficial and beneficial to the You know, taxpayers in the state of Colorado that, you know, the University of Colorado and Colorado State are not traveling or having to pay a guarantee or, you know, they're playing each other and they're keeping it in state. And so, you know, I get Bradley's point and there is a truth to it. Like, you know, Oregon is going to be, you know, in this next year, getting about thirty five million dollars in media rights revenue. And, you know, in the next five or seven years, we'll be getting about $35 million a year on average and we'll scale up after that, they hope. But Oregon State, I'd like to see what they can get for these seven home games. And if you're Oregon State, you know, if you get control of the Pac-2 conference assets like everybody thinks you are, you might be able to spend that 35000000 million. I'm looking at a school like Cal, who is going to the ACC for pennies on the dollar, and I am saying to myself, how is Cal going to continue to fund football when it's getting $11 million a year in media rights money when it used to get $27 million a year. Like that is a problem that I think is a, a bigger problem than maybe what Oregon State will face as long as the Beavers get control of the assets in the PAC too. And so I think there's a lawsuit mixed in the background of this and some of this may just be Oregon State going, we need to find a life raft for a couple of years. And part of that life raft is, like it or not, continuing the Civil War football game. I want more of your phone calls. 503-417-7575. I'm all kinds of fired up about something Rasheed Wallace said. I'll break it down in the next segment coming up. We will talk with Brian Berger of Sports Business Radio at 4 o'clock. He interviewed Adam Silver on his podcast. He asked Adam Silver about the Blazers' ownership situation. Uh, we'll find out what uh, Brian Berger learned from the NBA commissioner. Coming up, later in the show, Anna will be with us for the 5 at 5. It always goes off the rails. And uh, we'll talk to Spencer McLaughlin, uh, who covers the Oregon Ducks, among other things. He will uh, be with us to talk about the bowl game, the playoff, Oregon's uh, off-season recruiting, all of that stuff still ahead. I want to talk Civil War here for a minute. First of all, I love that everybody's just calling it the Civil War again. Should be. Uh, Secondarily, I want to know how you feel when you heard today that the teams have finalized an agreement and Oregon and Oregon State will play in 2024 at Research Stadium, 2025 at Autzen Stadium. There's a twist on the Oregon side, uh, Oregon side that's still coming that makes the game uh, even more palatable to Duck fans, but I will uh, save that for another day. I want to know where you stand on this. Let's go to Mark in Portland, who's been holding. Mark, welcome back to the show.
5: Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm well. I kind of go with what Steven said, but the more I think about it, I think it, this is finally becoming something that I've always wanted, as you know. It's an NFL-style playoff next year. So the Ducks, with a schedule that includes Michigan and Ohio State, if they end up 10-2 and two with those teams in their schedule, they're getting in the playoffs. So risking a game against a, a, a team in a school that absolutely hates you and it is a civil war it's it's going to be a tough game it always is no matter what the records are playing them at the beginning of the year doesn't sound like a smart thing as far as if your number one goal is to make those playoffs why why and i think the, i feel the same way about the beavers i'll ask you this question and and you guys on the show uh what would happen if, if the Beavers were the conference champions with one loss, but they played the Ducks and lost? Would, yeah, they, would it, that be enough to get them in? I mean, I think they're both risking a lot in that game. Uh, when we look at the new style of college football, finally a playoff where all the conference champions can control their fate. But the first thing, John, that Oregon State, and they need to do is get an automatic bid to that playoff. Very important for that league. I I don't think they they do
1: that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they'll get an automatic. But I want to ask you this. I got you on the phone. You know, Oregon went to Texas Tech last year. They were supposed to have Texas Tech at home. Really, they're trading the Texas Tech game for Oregon State. And then when you look into future schedules in 2025 and in 2026 and beyond, you know, Oregon's going to have to lose a non-conference game. It might be Oklahoma State, it might be Boise State. You know, I, I, I sort of look at Oregon State as, you know, an acceptable risk when you think the alternative is Oklahoma State or Boise State.
5: Yeah, it's risk reward. I think uh, as an as an Oregon fan, I you know, I'm just a fan of football. I had nothing to do with the realignment. So the Beavers being bitter about that is kinda difficult right now to deal with that fan base, to be honest with you. It's it's not our fault. I just root for my football team no matter where they go each year. So um i I want the rivalry to stay because I. I love the banter. I got family members that are Oregon State Beavers. I mean, all of us do. I've lived here my whole life, so, of course, you want that rivalry. But, you know, uh, I just. I, it's a different game now. So I think from a playoff standpoint, uh, you know, I got a lot of respect for Oregon State as a as a football team. The way they play and prepare against the Oregon Ducks, it's it's always going to be a tough game.
1: Yeah, I appreciate so I just that.
5: It as a potential loss.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the phone call. Uh, I was there at the Texas Tech game last season. That was a potential loss, too. I think, you know, when you start talking about, you know, what games every year Oregon State is going to be replacing on the future schedules for Oregon, you know, if it's a game at Boise State, if it's a game at Oklahoma State, if it's a game at Baylor, I think you'd probably go, hey, you know what, instead of paying the travel costs, You know, we'll take the home game every other year. We'll go 44 miles on a bus every other year. Nobody pays nobody. Um, It works for the state. You know, maybe it helps ease some of the tensions that are going on. Um, You tell me, though. I want to hear from you. Dave is in Vancouver. Dave, welcome to the conversation.
6: Oh, thanks for having me on, John. You bet. Hey, uh, I'm just a little bit uh, perturbed, I guess I'd say. I'm getting old. I'm turning into a curmudgeon. But uh, (laughs) my problem is uh, with the college football, the money grab. The uh, Cougars had a judge in the Palouse, you know, uh, make a judgment for, you know, UW, I mean, uh, Wazoo and uh, OSU taking the money. And then I heard there was a superior court judge, uh, UW judge voting, uh, you know, to take that money away from them. The thing is. (laughs) Um the 10 schools left not under the right uh format. I mean they left without giving notice. So technically they shouldn't be getting this money, but they've earned it and they deserve it. So it's just it's just kind of shameful. I'm looking at college football and there's everyone's grabbing for money. It's just yeah. sad, John. It really yeah, it is. Sad.
1: is. I, I appreciate that. I think we all agree on that. I, look Duck fan, Beaver fan. Can we just step back for a second, whether you like they're playing this game, hate that they're playing this game? Um, I think we can all recognize that, you know, we've watched the sport cede its power to television. And some of this has been cool because you get to see your teams on television and you're going to get to see some great matchups on television. But some of it sucks. And one of the things that sucked was the loss of the regional rivalries, the Apple Cup gone the Civil War, dead. And, you know, to Washington and Washington State's credit, they got back together and they said, all right, we're going to continue this series through 2028, play a neutral site game next season, then uh, decide to, uh, you know, continue in Pullman in 2025 and beyond and then flip-flop the game every year, and that's great. And then I kind of looked over at the Civil War and went, you know, are you going to do this or not? Uh, And it now appears that they have done it. Cooper's in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Cooper, welcome. Cooper's not there. Man, I was all, I teed that up for him. That was like one of my better intros. Very paced, very measured. I was all set for Cooper, and Cooper probably is in line at Dutch Bros and muted us and decided, you know, is Cooper back? Let's put Cooper, let's give Cooper a second shot. Cooper, you there? Yeah, how you doing, John? What were you doing? You had us on mute. I'm sorry. You were in my pocket.
4: I was I, don't, I was on a putting green. I, I was uh, just nailing some five-footers. Uh, there you go. What's up, man? Um, So I was just thinking, going back to what Marcus said about it being a camaraderie thing with family and the banter. Like, I'm in high school. I got half my friends are Duck fans, half my friends are Beaver fans it's all it's all the same with the banter there. It's all like a it's a camaraderie thing. It brings people together, in my opinion. You can every year it's something you can look forward to. and I feel like in the summer, it's gonna be a lot nicer because it's also not like fifty degrees out.
1: Yes, and, and, and yeah, you're right. You, you know that game's gonna get played in September. It will be better weather. It will probably not feel like, hey, we just had Thanksgiving. It's a Black Friday. You know, there have been some great matchups over the years, and, you know, you can go back to 83 in the Toilet Bowl, and it was pouring rain, and probably not going to see that in a September matchup. Will it lose luster because of the time that it's played, or will it feel better than everybody playing some boring old non-conference opponent that they had typically slotted in that schedule? And I don't mean any disrespect to Boise State, and I don't mean any disrespect to Texas Tech, but you give me the alternative of oregon state boise state on that date or texas tech oregon on that date or a civil war i'll watch the civil war let's go to courtney who's in vancouver courtney welcome to the conversation
6: hey there i uh, am all in favor of this civil war move um I have a group that goes to a couple of games every year, and we've tried to get into the uh, uh, the end-of-the-year stuff, and it's just been too damn cold to get in there. So we're excited about uh, doing a Civil War. But one of the issues that I'm most concerned about is, you know, as you go to the live games, you see it, you know, um, I hate all the timeouts for TV, and I wish that they could cut the commercial time down so that it's more of a real game instead of a timeout for five minutes every time they did that.
1: I appreciate that. You want to change TV and make it more viewer-friendly. Did you like this season, Stephen? They had the new clock. Remember, they sped everything up and put in more commercial breaks. Coaches didn't like it because it shortened the number of possessions in the game.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's nice not to have these four and a half hour games. So I think that I would vote yes that I did like the the changes a little bit. Now, I understand from the coach's point of view, you know, there's certain coaches that want to get as many possessions as possible because that's how their game plan goes. And so with the clock running all the time, you get less possessions. But as a viewer, yeah, I, I don't mind not having to sit there for four and a half, five hours when these games just drag on and the clock is stopping every two minutes.
1: Like, I, I, I think I enjoyed it more. This season that I did than the past seasons. Rasheed Wallace. He's on my list today. You'll hear his comments and my rebuttal next. I got to the state of Oregon in the winter of 2002. And by then, the term jailblazers had already been coined. And the Blazers were off to a interesting start that season. And Rasheed Wallace would set a league record for technical fouls. The team would have some problems. Obviously, you had a registered sex offender on the roster in Reuben Patterson. You later would have uh, Sean Kemp had just checked into rehab after his first season in Portland. Remember, went into a drug rehab for cocaine. You had uh, Zach Randolph in uh, that spring of 2002 was cited for underage drinking in his hometown in Indiana. And uh, in November of 2002, right before I got there, Rashid Wallace, Damon Stoudemire were cited for misdemeanor marijuana possession after their Yellow Hummer was stopped on the way home from a game in Seattle. They uh, both agreed to attend drug counseling, stay out of legal trouble. Four months later, Quintel Woods, remember Quintel, cited for speeding, driving without insurance or a driver's license, and possession of marijuana. Uh, April of the next year, Zach Randolph punched Ruben Patterson in the face. Um, July, Damon Stoudemire back in trouble, went through that uh, Arizona airport with marijuana wrapped in aluminum foil. You know, you had some, uh, you had some, uh, as as they would say, tomfoolery and ballyhoo going on with the Trailblazers. Nobody ever mistook the headbands for halos, basically. And attitudes towards marijuana have softened with the legalization of marijuana. Let's be clear. But Rasheed Wallace, I will never forget my first encounter with Sheed. I had come to the state of Oregon. I had previously been working at the San Jose Mercury News. I was covering the NFL, covering Major League Baseball. Walk into the Blazers locker room, went over to talk to Rasheed Wallace. And I'll never forget one of the TV reporters said, oh, no, no, he doesn't talk to anybody. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Why does not he talk to anybody? He's the best player on the team. So I went over and I introduced myself to Sheed, and he said, you know what, no offense, don't take it personally, I'm not going to talk to you. Um, You know, all of your colleagues, all you guys are in here just trying to write negative stuff. And I said, gosh, that doesn't sound very fair to me, you know. But uh, Rasheed and I had ups and downs. We had a period where we got along, and then later, of course, he turned to the resonant phrase, both teams played hard. Uh, in talking to reporters after the game. And it was very difficult to try to cover a team when you've got the best player going, both teams played hard. Both teams played hard. Both teams played hard. After every question that you would ask him. And, you know, he was intentionally difficult in that way. And I thought, gosh, you know, it would be so much easier if we just have a good working relationship. He wasn't interested. Rasheed Wallace gave an interview. Uh, He was talking about media, but he was talking about David Stern in this interview, you know, Stern trying to get him blackballed from the league. I think there's some truth in what Sheet is about to, you know, you're about to hear from him. I also think there's a lot of BS in it. And he's playing victim.
7: tried to get me out of there, bro. What happened with that? Try to blackball me. Why? Because of my, uh, both teams play hard, God bless and good night statements. Because my thing back then, we was the only show in town. Uh, you know what I mean? Portland. Yeah. So... All right, why not write positive things? Why not? Because we did a lot of positive things in the community. Sure. So they wanted to call it the jailblazers, but ain't nobody go to jail, right? So they felt most of the media felt as though if I write some negative, shit, it's gonna get me out of this little ass town to go but somewhere not, like a L.A., mm-hmm. like a Chicago, a bigger or you know, market, a bigger market. City, yeah, because yeah. I wrote this great, great negative article. So oh man, they used to. They used to pay cats uh, to watch us in the club to see how, count how many drinks we on, mm. just so they could be the first to get a story to come out if we got a DUI or some shit like that. But that's you know another it at story. the time, like season one? Oh, or yeah, or we it? seen it. Yeah, we knew it. But that's another story. We're going to get in that later. But to go back to what you asked me. But um, so, yeah, my big statement, you know, both teams play hard. God bless. Good night. Mm. So I asked him, since it's wrong for me to... Not say nothing to the negative reporters, mm-hmm. what do you want me to say? Have your secretary write up a dictation on what you want me to say? A statement yeah, you know, like made. oh, you're you know you're already saying it and saying you just answer the question. I said I am answering the question y'all just don't like my statements, mm-hmm. so you know him and I just tit for tat going back and forth, so then he you know he blurts out um to the to the owners and stuff, hey, if y'all don't tear up his contract. it's gonna be bad for y'all and uh and the uh. The next few drafts he says this to who who all is who all hears oh, this he said oh he said it to everybody he said it to my myself um at the time the gm uh, my man bob wits um was there um sitting in the office with the coach dum levy and myself and paul and david stern is all on you What's know up? speaker we're all on the conference call and yeah bro like i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe it and i was like and that's, you know, it was always a little a little war for words with, with me and him for the most part. But Ugh. reason being, I don't know why. My only thing is, hey, all I ever wanted was a fair career. My- that was it. That's all I ever wanted. Look, the players respected me, but yeah. I just didn't deal with everybody else.
1: He had a hard time with everybody else. He did. And he had a hard time with officiating. He had a hard time with anybody who was in any kind of role where they were judging him and media included. And, you know, he and I talked about that shortly after the conversation by his locker where he said, you know, no offense, I'm not going to talk to you. We talked about, you know, why it is he doesn't trust. And a lot of that goes back to Rasheed Wallace's family of origin. And, you know, he had been let down over and over by people. And, you know, he had his mother and he had some coaches and he had a father figure at North Carolina, but he didn't have a lot of people that he could really lean on. And I saw, you know, he turned on me pretty quickly. I, You know, just to be clear, people did get arrested. You know, you had a registered sex offender on the team. You had multiple incidents with the police, you know, with Zach Randolph drag racing down Broadway with a gun in his car. You had Quintel Woods, who was uh, arrested for fi- the dogfighting incident. You had Damon Stoudemire at the airport. You had Bonzi Wells at the plaid pantry. There was a police call on that one. You know, there were a lot of incidents, and it. In Rasheed's right in that Portland's a fishbowl, but as I tried to explain to him and some other players, it's an opportunity when you're in a fishbowl. Can you imagine? I had come from market number five in San Jose where you had the Raiders at the time, the Niners, you had the A's, you had the Warriors, you had the Giants, and you had every other you know, San Jose Sharks, you had every other small colleges, Cal and Stanford. Everybody was fighting for coverage. I came to Portland, and the Blazers, they weren't the only show, but it was a fishbowl that could have been a wonderful opportunity for Rasheed Wallace. And in fact, if you look at what Damian Lillard did with the same fishbowl, you kind of go, hey, like, Shade, there was an opportunity here for you in Portland to be the big fish and to get caught doing the thing, doing a lot of things right, and to become like, you know, a hero to the community. And he didn't seize that and he wasn't interested in it. The, his comment about, you know, some media paying to go paying somebody to watch him in the clubs. I got two two things on that. Nobody's paying anybody to go watch him in the club. Never happened. Don't know what he's talking about. Nobody I I never heard of that. I never saw it. I doubt it happened. Secondarily. Like, he, may, he goes on to say, in case we get a DUI, they know how many drinks we had. Like, like don't get a DUI. Like, there's, a, there's common sense in this. Like, it, you know, I look back at that time, and I felt like Rasheed Wallace had an opportunity to own Portland in that era. He could have been the guy in the way that Damian Lillard and Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge to some extent, later became the guy. And he didn't want it. He didn't want to take the big shots. He didn't want the scrutiny. He, he wanted to lead the league in technical fouls and ejections and, you know, be difficult. And I thought Rashid was a great player. He's a player who could have played in this era because of his ability to shoot the three, his length, smart player, great on the court. His teammates loved him. But, I you know, even in the end, I told him, I said, I'm sad we never got to know that guy. And, you know, his comment to me when I arrived, I'll, no, no offense, but I'll never talk to you. He later, during that 2002-2003 playoff series, what they had with Dallas, we were in Dallas, and I went to him after game two, and they lost two games. And I said, uh, you know, hey, can you go back to Portland and win two? And he whipped around and said, if you're here when I come back, I'm going to punch you. You know, like, bo- I would have taken both teams played hard at that moment. You know, it, it's no fun to cover that either. And as a fan, I can imagine Blazer fans would have wanted, desperately wanted to know him and to enjoy him, not just as a player, but anything he would have given fans would have would have been tremendously beneficial to him, to the fan base, to the team. But you know, you go back to that blown lead against the Los Angeles Lakers. Shade, step up, be the guy. Don't be afraid to be the guy. You were getting paid the guy money. He was the highest paid player on the team that had the highest payroll in the NBA. And he didn't want the ball. And he didn't want the responsibility. And he didn't want the scrutiny. And so in the end, you're left with, you know, here we are all these years later, Rasheed Wallace reinventing the story to be like, you know, we never got arrested, but they called us the jailblazers. And you had a sex offender on your team. He got arrested, you know, among others. And it was embarrassing. And it was embarrassing for fans. And people were disappointed that the team never seemed to break through. But I got to be honest with you, I had seen it before. I had, you know, the, I'd been to the puppet show, so to speak. I know where the strings were. I had seen this routine play out before. I'd been in other markets. I'd been around other teams. I'd seen well-run franchises and badly run franchises. And when I walked through the door and saw the Blazers, I said, they're never going to win. It's going to be sad, but they're never going to win. Because they didn't have it. They didn't have that X Factor that some of the teams that were winning on a big stage and the biggest levels had. They just didn't have it. And a big piece of it, i got to be honest, goes back to Sheed. He won NBA championships, but he won them in a place where he wasn't the guy. He was a supplementary piece. He just didn't have it in him. Steven, that fires me up when I hear that.
3: Yeah, no doubt. And I'm the same way with Sheed. Like, I love his game, and he should have been way better than he was. He just never put it out there on the court, never wanted to be the guy. It it is a big what-if. Go down another what-if in Blazer history, but – what if the Blazers don't blow that lead in the fourth quarter against the Lakers? Like, I mean, how does Rashid look at the city of Portland? How does he look at the Blazer franchise? Like, it's probably so different because we all would have celebrated him as, you know, a hero in Portland Trailblazer history, but instead we think of him as the guy who gets technical fouls and the guy gets thrown out in playoff games. So it's... It's interesting to hear his side of the story and that's how he viewed it because there was some negativity negativity as well. Like he's not wrong with that. There's negativity, but at the same time, it was also deserved. Like they didn't step up. There were bad guys on the team. Like it's a little bit revisionist history for him thinking that it was all good and dandy here in Portland when he was here.
1: I left market number five for this podunk town, as he calls it. I had chances to go to Seattle and LA and I, I nobody was trying to get a story. That's not how you elevate your career. It's not getting a story. The story is sad. The Blazers should have won bigger with Rasheed Wallace. That's the fact. Our next guest used to work for the Trailblazers. He's now the host of a successful podcast, Sports Business Radio. Brian Berger interviewed Adam Silver on his latest episode, He's got Greg Sankey coming up on the next episode. We're going to talk to him all about it. But Berger asked Adam Silver the, the $3 billion question. He asked him what's going on with the ownership situation in Portland. Here's Adam Silver and Brian Berger. I,
7: I have no better sense of a precise timing there. I think Paul's directives are clear. His estate, you know, led by Jody. Allen is the trustee, are con- currently in control of the team. I think in fairness to Jody and the basketball people around her, they very much have a vision for building this team and whether they were controlling it for five more years or ten more years, I think the team is on the right path to developing. And so, you know, some, some necessary rebuilding, we've seen that in a lot of organizations around the league, but I'm still very optimistic about the
1: future of the Trailblazers. Giddy up. Let's get this done. Let's get this franchise in someone else's hands. Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, joining us now. Uh, what was that? What you know, You've know? you interviewed Silver. You've interviewed David Stern over the years. Well, how was that for you?
4: It's great. I mean, you're tapping into some pretty
8: brilliant minds and people who have built global brands. And, um, you know, I had to ask that question while I had it, right? Like, that's the question everyone in Portland wants to know. It's a question a lot of people around the league wanted to know i could have followed up and pressed harder but i didn't have you know a tremendous amount of time with commissioner silver and um you know i wasn't going to get into a, a debate with him about jody allen and the state of the trailblazers franchise but you know i feel like to my audience my sports business radio listeners i did owe them that question and i also asked about mark cuban and you know adam was a little bit more Forthcoming with his uh, answer with Mark Cuban than he was about Jody Allen.
1: Yeah, what do you make of Cuban? And we'll get back to Allen here, but what do you make of Cuban saying, you know, is he getting out while it's good, and does he see something coming, or is he just sort of wants something new or not have the energy for it? what What do you What do you make of Cuban's move? I don't know.
8: I mean, I've had Cuban on a few times too, and and it's really curious because. Um, You know, you've got the new NBA media rights deal that's going to come at the end of the 24-25 season, and gambling is not legal right now in the state of Texas. So you're talking about building a new arena and a casino and this whole district, and, you know, does he know something that we don't know that they're going to legalize gambling in Texas in the next couple of years? If he knows that, then this move makes a lot of sense. Uh, Short of that, it is a little bit curious as to the timing of, of that announcement.
1: We're talking to Brian Berger, Sports Business Radio. The Jody Allen question. You know, I know why it's important, but I want to hear from you. You've worked for that franchise. Why is it important that the Blazers eventually end up in the hands of new ownership?
8: Well, I mean, if you heard my question, if you go back and listen, like I said to Adam, she hasn't made a statement in five years since her brother died. We have not heard any vision that's being shared. We don't know what the future plans are. We don't know, you know, what is gonna happen with the arena deal, which is up in the next two years. So, you know, there's a lot of unknowns, and I think any time a pro sports team owner doesn't come out and, you know, at least once a year give a State of the Union and and share the vision with the fans, it, it leaves them wondering. And it's been five years here in Portland since we've heard from you know, the people at the top about what the direction of this franchise is, not only on the court, but, you know, with the arena and, and you know, beyond that arena deal.
1: Brian, the NBA as a whole, they're trying some new things. Obviously, this midseason, season uh, in-season tournament has uh, been met with some positive reviews. And the Suns-Lakers game last night on TNT averaged about 2 million viewers. That's up almost 90%. Versus last year in the comparable windows, um, is the is the tournament a success? What is the how is the NBA doing?
8: It's a huge success. I mean, look, the secret with the NBA has always been before Christmas, no one really cared about the NBA games. A lot of guys were on load management. All you need to know is two things: number one, the players are taking this very seriously, and Adam Silver confirmed that when he was on my show. Like they're you watch some of these games and they're playing hard, like it's, you know, NBA playoffs already. And then, you know, last month was the highest attendance the NBA has ever had for the month of November in their entire history of their league. So those two things tell you that they're on to something and, you know, kind of the dog days of November, December, and the NBA are going to look a little bit different now because they've got this in-season tournament, which – you know, the players seem to be embracing and and motivated to play a little harder for.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the NBA had to do something with the early part of the season. It just just was such a lull and, you know, didn't feel like it mattered that much. We're talking to Brian Berger, Sports Business Radio. Adam Silver's leadership versus David Stern's leadership. You knew both. You've interviewed both. How do you see those two things?
8: They're so different. They're so different. So David, I think, was the perfect commissioner at, the time that he was commissioner. So he was commissioner 30 years. He came in in 1984. The league didn't have its games on live TV. The NBA Finals were on tape delay, the Lakers and the Sixers. There were drug problems. You had bad owners like Ted Stepien, where they almost had to take the Cavaliers away from him. I mean, it was a mess. And he came in, and when they needed a strong leader, and someone who kind of the buck stopped with him, that was Stern. And, you know, everyone was kind of afraid of Stern, the owners, the players, the coaches. They knew he was the top dog and that he was in charge. Adam is much more collaborative. Um, He's really embraced the players' union. Um, I think he's a great commissioner for this time that we're in right now. I'm not sure David Stern's iron fist would work today. But Adam Silver is the perfect commissioner for the NBA at this time. But they're very different people
1: meteorites deal for the league is coming up and I think we all expected there would be a windfall there, but some of the sports business writers are pumping the brakes a little bit going, you know, let's, let's wait and see. What what do you make of that landscape right now?
8: Well, so the number one question I asked Adam Silver about the meteorites deal was would the NBA take an equity stake in a broadcast network or a streaming platform as part of, their new media rights deal and he said sure everything's on the table so that tells me maybe the cash isn't as great as they thought it would be but an equity stake in a disney or an amazon or one of these other streaming platforms that could be appealing to the mba but you know overall john the media rights you know there's only so much money out there and The regional sports networks are dying and going bankrupt. And, you know, even the ESPNs and Foxes of the world, there's only so much money to pay for all these media rights. So it's really about the timing and, you know, how much money these platforms have to spend on live sports.
1: Yeah, and I think you know the Pac-12 conference found out a little bit about the market. It can be tricky. It'll be interesting to see you know the Blazers sale and the timing of the Blazers sale. If Jody ever lets it out of a stranglehold, what does that have to do with the TV deal and and whatnot? Um, Hey, I I gotta get your brain on this because you're a sports business guy. Oregon State and Oregon are going to continue the civil war series. It looks like uh, they will. uh, Oregon State will get home games against a power four opponent. Oregon will get to uh, fill its stadium and make its season ticket package look a little better every other year. How do you read the continuation of the Civil War football game from a business standpoint?
8: I think it's great. I mean, there's no real downside to it. It's a it's a long time rivalry. The fans wanted to see it continue. Um, you know, I think other than the most recent game, which was kind of a dud, it's always been a pretty exciting game. So I think you know the networks will be excited to cover it. So yeah, I think it's great. And, you know, I wish more uh, teams kept their rivalries alive. I mean, we're going to see some of these rivalries die with all of the realignment and the shifting of conferences. And um, so I, I give a lot of credit to the ADs at Oregon and Oregon State for keeping that rivalry alive. And, and really, that's what the fans want at the end of the day.
1: Brian Berger, Sports Business Radio, is our guest. Hey, Brian, the, the uh, college NCAA president, Charlie Baker. Came out, wrote a letter basically saying, hey, you know, maybe we split away the top schools that can afford to pay players. Uh, Greg Sankey today coming out and saying, you know, you probably uh, should have floated this idea to us earlier so we could check with, you know, our presidents. Uh, You're going to have Sankey on your next episode. What do you want to learn from Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner?
8: Oh, my gosh, so much. I mean, you know, I think TV drives everything right now, as we were just discussing. So, You know, I'm interested in the college football playoff media deal that still needs to be hammered out. Remember, there's going to be expansion from four to 12 teams. Um, To me, the SEC is the dominant conference, top to bottom, in college sports. Um, You look at even, like, LSU women's basketball is super relevant. So um, there's a lot of things, but, you know, this, this free agency that has hit college sports. I mean, people are calling it the transfer portal. Well, you might as well just call it free agency because that's what it is. You may see quarterbacks playing at four different schools in four different years. I mean, they're going to go to the highest bidder every year. And who can give you the most money and who can market you the best? And, I mean, it's just crazy. But the SEC, to me, is at the epicenter of all of it. That is the big boy conference, and, you know, that's where the main – when you look at the professionalism of college athletics, it all started in the SEC with Alabama and Georgia and LSU.
1: Give me an idea, because there's part of me, Brian, that is lamenting the loss of college athletics as I knew it. Simultaneously, I'm going, yeah, I understand. Players should share in the financial success. Is there a happy ground? Is there a happy medium for me in that, in that argument?
8: I don't think so. I mean, I've been saying for 10 years on Sports Business Radio, we turn 20 years old next year. For 10 years, I've been saying college sports is going to get to a professional level. I mean, you look at the facilities like University of Oregon's and Alabama's, and, you know, now you've got NIL. And I've said for years, college basketball and football should break off and be their own entity, and everything else is its own entity. And finally, we're kind of seeing that, where the two biggest revenue drivers, basketball and football, are driving everything else. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, because you look at, like, University of Oregon, women who are suing the school because they're not getting nearly the, the same treatment that the men are getting. You're gonna see a lot more of that at other schools and in other conferences. But uh, I think the ship has sailed on you know, this is college sports rah-rah. This is now full-blown professional sports.
1: Rashid Wallace gave an interview on a podcast and complained about being in the Fishbowl of Podunk, Portland, and playing as a Blazer there. Um, I push back on that. I mean, there have been some cases of athletes who have taken advantage of that Fishbowl. What do you make of Rashid Wallace in coming out, you know, 20 years later?
8: I mean, I don't know. I think Rashid had a good time when he was here. I was around him a little bit, and you know, I worked with Brian Grant, and Brian Grant still lives here and loves it here. And there's a lot of players that have played here that you know have returned here to live or are still like it. Um, I do know it's not the most it's not the most diverse town, um, and it's not the biggest town. So you know, sometimes during the off season, the players want to go live in their hometown or live somewhere else, but. You know, I think Rashid was fine when he was here. It's always interesting when people look back 20 years later with revisionist history, right?
1: Yeah. Do you think he got treated unfairly? Let's, you know, did the media nitpick him or was was he treated fairly? You were around.
8: Yeah, I think he was treated fairly. Uh, You know, he had been in Philadelphia and North Carolina and all these other markets. and, And this is a pretty soft market, in my opinion, when it comes to the The media so i think he was treated fairly i think that was an interesting team he was on because they were high profile um and then you know towards the end they were the jailblazers and you know there was a lot of uh stories written about the dysfunction of that team heck terry eggers i think wrote a book about it so you know when you're on that kind of a team they're going to get that kind of coverage and and people are going to look under the, the sheets a little bit more but uh You know, I think he was treated fairly for the most part. I think, you know, I love Rashid, and, you know, I saw a side of him that most people don't see. He was a great dad and just a fun-loving guy. I've seen him, like, do cannonballs into the swimming pool. But, you know, he was a little ornery when he was a player and and around the media.
1: I, uh, I keep thinking about the generation of players that are coming into the game now and how much more they understand their own brand. What do you think young players across sports know now that maybe 10, 20 years ago they they didn't?
8: Well, I think they know that, you know, everything they say and do is under a microscope, you know, and everything they post on TikTok or Instagram, you know, it's not just you're doing your media interviews after practice or after a game. Everything you do is scrutinized. And some use that to their advantage and, You know, you look at someone young like Scoot Henderson and and what he's doing and he's got shoe deals and, you know, he's really trying to uh, embrace all of that. But, you know, with that also comes a lot of scrutiny because people are watching your every move. And and that's where a city like Portland can become a little bit of a a fishbowl. You know, a lot of the stars don't mind playing in L.A. or New York or Chicago because you can kind of get lost amongst the other stars here. You know, this is a big deal in town, so you do attract a little bit more attention than you would in a, in a major city.
1: You've been at it a long time with Sports Business Radio. I know when you started, did you have any sense that it would get to this point you'd be interviewing Adam Silver and Greg Sankey and others in in, in multiple weeks?
8: I mean, it was my dream, right? My first guest was David Stern, so that was a pretty good way to get off the ground. And, and you know, David was a mentor to be me in me a favor by being my first guest and helping us have some credibility but yeah i mean john i'm lucky i get to peek under the hood every week of some of the best sports organizations on earth and you know you get to hear from the brightest minds and why these people have made the decisions they've made and the path they've taken to success and um you know i'm lucky that i have the access but if you had told me back in 2004 that i'd be doing this 20 years later i might have Just laughed at you so I consider myself lucky and I hope I'm doing it for 20 more years like you you know I'm curious about people and everyone has a story and everyone has a path to get to where they've gotten to and and I think it's interesting to you know find out people's stories
1: give me an idea when you're peeking under the hood at some of these great franchises do you see common themes that you could say that's the mark of a champion
8: Well, I've always said, you know, if you're drawing a straight line down, it's owner, it's GM, it's head coach, it's star player. If you have alignment with those four, you're usually going to have success. If you don't have alignment with all four, it might be a little bit bumpy and it might be downright ugly. But to me, you know, there's alignment with those four positions and uh everyone's on the same page they're all rowing in the same direction and you know that seems to be the the common theme the other thing i would tell you is you hire good people and you let them do their job you don't micromanage the good organizations hire good people people who know what they're doing and you let them do their job
1: give me an idea you know i'm watching the college football playoff selection committee in a terrible position, on you know, over the weekend, they emerge. They've left out thirteen and zero Florida State. How bad is that for the postseason? For the game of football, and you know, Florida State feels robbed.
8: Yeah, I mean, look, it's not great for them. You know, they're going to expand to the twelve teams, but you know, when you created this format that they have right now you know there were five power five conferences and there's only four slots. So didn't you know at some point this was going to happen? And, yes, I realize Texas and Alabama have a loss and Florida State doesn't. You know, you could analyze it 25 different ways. It's not a great look, but I'm not surprised that this was bound to happen at some point most likely.
1: Brian Berger, Sports Business Radio. Grab his latest podcast It's Adam Silver, Greg Sankey on the horizon. Berger, tell people where to find the podcast.
8: Sportsbusinessradio.com. We're on Apple, Spotify, and we've even got a YouTube channel if people want to watch our interviews.
1: Love it. Berger, thank you, man. Thanks for joining us.
8: John, happy holiday. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
1: You bet. There he is, Brian Berger, former public relations guy with the Blazers, now hosting sports business radio um you know i saw that side of Rashid that was likable i'll tell you this i'll tell you a quick story before the commercial break when i went up to Sheed and i said to him hey i'm brand new uh i'm a columnist i'm new in town shook his hand you know i had other media members watching me from across the room expecting Sheed to like threaten to punch me or get away from my locker and all that and he didn't he turned and we talked for a while and I said to him, you know, he said, I just want to be treated fairly. And I said, I'm here. I said, if you do something bad, I'm going to write about it. But, you know, uh, you do something good, I'm going to write about that too. And, and, uh, and I said to him, hey, Sheed, you know, I heard a story about you. I heard a story that, you know, you were really good at something that was surprising at North Carolina. It was artsy. And I can't remember who told me or what it was. And I kept, I don't know if it was music or painting or cooking or something. It was something different. Do you, what was that? And he said, uh, he looked at me and he was like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, All right. No, anyway, nice to meet you. I walked away. So for a few weeks, I would walk by Rashid Wallace at the, what was then the Rose Garden Arena. And I would say, was it theater? And he'd go, nope. And, you know, and then I'd walk by him another time. Cooking? Nope. And then I'd go by, do you play the violin? Nope. And that went on for several weeks. And I got a little rapport with him. And he actually talked for a while after games. And he would give a quote here or there. And we were developing a little trust. And the Blazers got to the, uh, got to the playoffs against the Dallas Mavericks, you may remember, in the 2002-2003 season. And the Blazers' team playing on the way to Dallas I don't know if you remember this, Stephen. It got hit by lightning. Like, you think about like how like poetic that is. The plane got struck by lightning. The players were all buzzing about it. And so at the shoot-around, or after a practice in Dallas, I don't remember what it was, it was either between games or on the morning of a game, I said to Rashid, I said, what was that like? And he whipped around, and he said, why are you always trying to write something negative? And I was like, I'm not writing about this. I just want to know what it's like to get struck by lightning. And he walked away. And then subsequently, after Game 2, they lost the game, I said to Rashid, they were down 0-2 in the series, can you go back to Portland and do this to them? And that's when he said, when I get back from the shower, you better not be here, I'm going to knock your head off. And punch you in the face, or whatever he said. And I remember Brian Ficini, who was the uh, public relations guy for the Blazers, he was looking at me wide-eyed, and Zach Randolph was like two lockers away, and... When Rashid walked to the showers, Zach Zebo leaned down to me, and he goes, Hey, when he comes back, you better have your head on a swivel. And I I, I knew I had to stay there. Because after somebody says something like that, as a reporter, you're not going to like skulk away. Everybody's watching me. So I stood there. I never moved. And Rashid came back, and he toweled off, and he never looked at me. And I just I waited for him to turn around. He never looked at me. He got dressed. He left. I left. And... Uh, later, Zach was like, you know, you, you. good thing you had your head on a swivel. I said, Zach, you're the guy who punched Reuben Patterson. What are you talking about, head on a swivel? Uh, Rashid and I were never the same. I don't know what I did. I asked him about the lightning. And, you know, best I can tell, he just had a hard time trusting and didn't like the media. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Anna's in the studio. I feel like I should warn you. <laughs> Do you take that the right way? No. Okay. So moving on. Uh, let me <laughs> let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had a chance to talk with you about this yet today. Uh, just to catch up on some news. Oregon and Oregon State will resume the Civil War series starting in 2024 at research Stadium. 2025 at Autzen Stadium. It'll be a September game. So good weather. You won't be all bundled up and freezing uh, if you're going to the game. Uh, this you know is being met by. With some uh, some fury by some Oregon State fans who say they just don't want to play Oregon and some Oregon fans going the Ducks are beneath or the Beavers are beneath us now we've moved to the Big Ten um, I think it's great I think rivalry is great I think the intangibles that go with a rivalry are great I think this is great for the state but I only feel like about forty percent of the audience agrees with me
9: uh, yeah I, I I find it almost entertaining the spectrum of reasons why people don't want this to happen. (laughs) And you know, I'm, I I don't know. It ranges from uh, people that don't want it in September. Yeah. To people who are upset because they're Ducks fans and they are season ticket holders and this eliminates a home game apparently on the schedule for them. I mean, it's just um, I I and it, I guess it surprised me. I don't know. Did it surprise you? No,
1: because I've been I've been hearing this for a while. And, okay. And the other thing is, I don't think the the full I know the full picture's not out there yet. Mm-hmm. There's another piece to the puzzle, as there always is with scheduling. Sure. So there's another benefit to Oregon, and I I can't say it publicly because it's not 100% locked down. Yeah. But Oregon will be going to Oregon State instead of going somewhere else mm-hmm. and it saves them a trip that they probably didn't want to make in in uh, coming up in the next two seasons. Mm-hmm. And that's the best I can give. Yeah, okay people can figure it out probably yeah. but well, based and, on yeah. what I just said.
9: And you do have beavers fans that are upset because they're like they see it as the that Oregon State's doing a favor for mm-hmm. the ducks giving them an easier you know quote unquote road game. And uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's interesting. It's like there's a lot of unhappiness about it. And then you have well, I get that, people though. that are happy that the tradition uh, and the history will continue.
1: Don't you understand the unhappiness? Like, the, like people are still, it's raw still mm-hmm. for it's people. It's super raw, yeah. And I think, you know, I get that. But I also am going, it's show business at some level. And if you're Oregon State, you jump all over the idea of trying to schedule this game because it helps you financially. It helps you survive. And if you're Oregon, you jump on it because that's a uh, that's a road game that's 44 miles away. Doesn't cost you anything to go there, and it's a guaranteed sellout when you're at home.
9: But I mean, that's why it's clear that this this situation still has a lot of emotions attached to it. Because I think when you step back, you can make the logical and pragmatic arguments for why it should continue. But uh, it's all just it's too soon. <laughs>
1: Well, you had to announce it at some point. They're not. They're actually not announcing it. I announced it this morning. They they were not ready to announce it. So sorry, it's, I, I don't work for you. Sorry, like, not sorry. You know. But as I called around to multiple sources, they were like, "Well, wait a minute. You know, neither school really wants to announce the schedule until they have all of the schedule locked down." Yeah. And there are some moving pieces for Oregon. There are some moving pieces for Oregon State. There are some moving pieces at the helpers here. Texas Tech going to Washington State. Mm -hmm. Washington State's not ready to announce their schedule, nor is Texas Tech. Boise State is a helper as well. They're, uh, you know, jockeying some things around to make this happen. Um, And so nobody's ready to announce their schedule. And I'm calling around like a nuisance going, you know, I I know this to be true. (laughs) I'm about to report this. Can you confirm this? And nobody's really, they're, well, they're going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not quite ready to announce it. And I go, yeah, but the, the news is this game's happening. <laughs> and I'm here for my readers and my listeners. And I'm <laughs> just going to tell everything about how the sausage is made. Well, right? d- but don't you, didn't you run into that problem in TV news where you knew something. Mm-hmm. You knew that your viewers would benefit by knowing it, too. It's not your job to keep a secret. And... Simultaneously, the entities that you're covering sometimes, you know, they want you to, like, we're going to announce this, but we want to announce it on our terms. We want you to embargo it or we want you to wait for us. Like, you know, there becomes a balancing act there where, like, you know, I'm going, i I got to serve my readers. I know this is happening. I've got it confirmed. The Civil War is happening in 2024, 2025, and beyond. I need to report it. Yeah,
9: that happens all the time, and I think the people, and it does get tricky because these are a lot of times sources that you work with on a consistent basis, and you will have to work with them again in the future, but people almost kind of forget that, you know, by nature you're in adversarial roles. You're there just to seek the truth and report it. You're not there to be the PR arm of whatever entity it is that you're covering. Truth. My my sensitivity was when um, I had something story wise that was potentially going to mess with a criminal investigation, and that's where I would have conversations with the law yeah. enforcement well, about, like, well, you know, let's work together on this because I, uh, you know, I know what my job is and I know what your job is, and I don't want to screw up um, a, a potential
1: criminal prosecution. Okay, so that's the benefit of me being in the toy factory instead of in the middle of like. A court case, you know, like I'm <laughs> yeah. working in the, uh, you know, the, in the in the department store of life. Yeah. I'm in the toy section. Yeah. OK. And so <laughs> I'm not worried about like a criminal case. Yeah. I'm just going, if I report this, is it going to cause this deal to be unwound? Is it going to harm anybody? Is anybody going to lose their job over me doing this? And the answer to all those things is no, no, no. It's just, you know, Oregon State and Oregon are going to have to take some phone calls from some reporters who are going, hey, I saw this reported. What can you tell us? And they're going to be like, you know what? It's happening. We can confirm that it's happening, but we're not ready to announce all the details. But I can tell you the details. Oregon's going to Corvallis in 2024. The Beavers are going to Autzen Stadium in 2025. Texas Tech was supposed to be playing at Oregon next season. They're going to Pullman because Washington State is playing the role of helper here. So is Texas Tech. And then... You've got Boise State going all right. Instead of playing the Ducks on the, you know, the 14th, we'll move to the 7th of September to clear the 14th so that Oregon and Oregon State can play. But Boise State was supposed to play Oregon State on the 14th. So what happens to that game? Well, that game gets played later in the season. And I got to tell you, I called no fewer than six or eight different people involved in college athletics to get them to confirm all of those pieces. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm playing like, it's like scavenger hunt, yeah. where you're going door to door and you're getting a new clue everywhere. Mm-hmm.
9: It's a little bit, I think it's like Sudoku, if you've ever played that game, where it's like, okay, well, if I can fill in this box here, I can try to figure out what the other two boxes have in them based on what I've already put in, and uh, it's a lot of calling around for you. Do you buy the argument, by the way, from Ducks fans that playing the beavers diminishes the... The Ducks' strength of schedule? No,
1: no. In fact, I argue the opposite, and I think, I think you're really talking about trading Texas Tech for an Oregon State game, yeah, yeah. next season, right? And then you're potentially trading another game, either Boise State or, um, or your you know Oklahoma State Mm -hmm. for the Oregon State game. You're getting a guaranteed. It's going to help your home season ticket package. You're getting a guaranteed sellout. For a non-conference game, and you're going to look at in the new playoff, Oregon is going to the Big Ten. If you know they go ten and two in the Big Ten, they're going to be in the playoff. Nobody's going to go. Well, you yeah, you lost to uh, Oregon State in in week two. You never should have played that game. Or you beat Oregon State, but they're not you know they're not a power five team anymore. Uh, nobody's viewing them that way. I think it was really interesting as I called around to learn that people were sort of viewing Oregon State and Washington State as something in between.
9: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, they were like, they weren't a Mountain West team in the eyes of the athletic directors and the schedule people that I talked with. Right. They were viewing them almost like a Power Five. Mm-hmm. So seeing it as a better, being better than playing Boise State or San Diego State or Fresno State. You know, we'll mm-hmm. play Washington State. That's yeah. the Texas Tech. That was They said that was a better game for them than playing, like, a Mountain West opponent. So they're going to take it. They're going to play Washington State. It's a game Texas Tech thinks it can win. Mm-hmm. They're going to go on the road. They think they can go to Pullman. They think they can win that game. And meanwhile, they don't have to go to Oregon, where they were probably going, that's a loss. Mm-hmm. You know. And I think, conversely, Oregon fans, you saw how hard it was to go to Texas Tech, to go to Lubbock. You're on the face of Mars <laughs> trying to play a football game. You know how hot it was? I was looking around for a shadow before the game. I was like, can I just hang? I wasn't even looking for a tree. I was like, can I get a shadow? Like, is there a lamppost I can hide in the shadow is here? A, is there a large human being that I can uh, take shelter under? I, it was just it was a bad situation. And then Oregon's playing this game, and they fell behind by double digits to Texas Tech, and I was going, they shouldn't have scheduled this game. It's hard to win here. And I started looking up how difficult it was. Like, Texas Tech's home record, they win like 95% of their home games. It's really hard to win in Lubbock. So, you know, as hard as it is to win at Research Stadium, Oregon State has to be looking over at Oregon and going, you know, we know we're down. We know we're changing head coaches. We know we might not be able to fund the program the same way as you. And Oregon's got to be looking over going, hey, it's a bus ride. It's not a plane ride. It's not the face of Mars. Let's take it. So I think it works for everybody if you can step away from the emotion but there is a lot of emotion. There's a lot. And so I I
9: think that's going to carry over into the game itself. Like, there's going to be ears of corn thrown at this game. Not that I'm advocating for that. But uh, <laughs> I think, don't you think? Like, do you think everything's going to be ratcheted up real high in this game? More I think, I know.
1: Okay, I, when I got here 20 years ago.
9: Or is it a year enough to cool off? No,
1: it's not. Okay. When I got here 20 years ago, yeah. I, every year, started doing, it was like the hundred and You know, it must have been like the 107th meeting of the teams when I got here. And I did 107 Civil War facts. Mm -hmm. Then the next year I did 108. Published that every year. All the way to 125 or 6 or whatever I did last. Mm -hmm. Okay, every year I would do the facts. Yeah. So I know the facts of this rivalry. Bad feelings. Bad feelings in 1910. They didn't play in 1911 because they hated each other. Mm Mm-hmm. There were bad feelings. There was one game in the 30s where they one side threw ears of corn at the other. There was a brawl in 1965. There was, um, you know, both teams playing for a Rose Bowl berth. We saw that, you know, Civil War for the roses. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen goalposts get torn down. We've seen overtime games. We've seen a toilet bowl. This is your argument for why it should continue. I'm saying that. This series, it's the fifth longest series in all of college football, okay? Uh-huh. And that's not like being the fifth tallest person on the bus. This is like all of college football, you know? Yeah. You know, all across the country. You you know, you have very few rivalries that have been played longer than the late 1800s, okay? And I'm looking at it going, this whole fiasco where Oregon went to the Big Ten and Oregon State's fighting for relevancy is going to be part of the story in 50 years. And some jackass sports columnist is going to be doing 177 facts about the Civil War, and they're going to say the series was almost canceled in 2023, but here's what happened. And the sides got together and decided it was best to play each other.
9: Does it bother you, the people that are right now already – ready to be done with it that are like hey let's just move on screw the history you know we've gone our separate ways why are we forcing this kind of thing does that annoy you is it is it our culture to have a lack of appreciation for history and the continuity of it this is thing? it is and i'm
1: not like mr history guy yeah, you know, I'm not like I, I'm not actually. We well, kind
9: of are in this situation. In this situation, but you like, need some like padded elbows and a you know.
1: But you've seen me when we go to a museum, you know. I
9: I'm, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that. I just kind of skate around,
1: and I I go to a museum, and I'm like, yeah, I was in China in a museum. They invented steel. Like, what do we have here? Like, you know, it's not very impressive sometimes. But like, <laughs> a, you know, a, a good museum. You know, they were making most museums. I kind of look at the exhibits and I go, yeah, they were making the best of it. That's, that's kind of what kind of what a museum is, you know, to me. Museum of Natural History. Oh, look at those artifacts. Huh. Well, what do they have? They had stones.
9: So they made daggers out of a yeah. big deal. My
1: big question is always <laughs> conspiracy driven. I'm like, how are we going to feed all these people when I see the population growth in the in the in the last uh, hundred years? And then I start thinking about you know we see like you were at that mi- mi- living history museum and yeah, we yeah. saw like uh Lucy yeah you know and we saw the cave woman. all the uh all the different you know variations of man yeah and i uh i'm looking at it going you know i'm in the wrong era you know i could have been like an nba player in that era <laughs> you know i'm i'm a foot taller than the the you know the creatures that we had roaming the earth you know i don't say that out loud but i'm yeah. thinking it you yeah. know all right Okay. Leave it here. Who is the most hated athlete in today's sports landscape? Uh, Jamal Adams, Seattle Seahawks safety, um, fired back at an NFL reporter who had commented on his play. I don't know if you guys saw this, but the reporter had uh, covered Adams when he was with the Jets. So there may be some beef here. Probably is some beef. Uh, he reposted a video on Twitter last Thursday night after Adams allowed the go-ahead touchdown and a loss to the Cowboys, and he commented, yikes. Um, Adams responded on Twitter by finding a picture of the reporter's wife and then tweeted, yikes. It's kind of mean. Um, he was asked about whether or not he crossed the line, and he pushed back and said, Oh, it's always the athlete cross the line when he responds. But at the end of the day, disrespect is disrespect, however you want to take it. So I responded. I knew when I did hit that tweet, I wasn't in it to win it. At the end of the day, it was to get him to understand to leave me the hell alone. Adams did say that he and the reporter have a previous history. They don't like each other. Um, Yada, yada, yada. What do you make all that? Steven, you probably saw it.
3: I did, yeah. Um, first of all, the yikes tweet that the reporter did, he didn't tag Jamal Adams. He didn't say anything about the play. He just showed the play and just you know showed that it was a bad play. And, and I think if, it's one thing if he tags him, he tries to humiliate him. I okay, can't say that humiliate word. Humiliate him. Humiliate. Yeah. Uh, still can't say it. Um, But he, he didn't try to do that, I don't think. He just was showing a bad play. And then Jamal Adams strikes back. Now, while kind of funny that he went and he went with a yikes on his wife, it's not as if his wife was bad looking. Like you know, like so I don't think it was really worthy of a yikes from Jamal Adams at the same time. But But does it, but does it make it any different? <laughs> no, it doesn't. But I
1: Steven Steven on a scale of one to ten. No, no, no.
3: Just I just think it was it's kind of just bad form by Jamal Adams. Like, come on now, bro, that just seemed a little weird but uh yeah I don't know I just I thought it was a lot of line
1: it feels to me like he doesn't get it like he just doesn't get it uh mike florio said a jerk is a jerk there's nothing wrong with calling jerks out and you know he's calling jamal adams out i think it's classless to bring other people particularly the the looks of the reporter's wife into this debate between jamal adams and the reporter and I saw the original tweet. The reporter tweeted, yikes, because there was a blown coverage. Mm -hmm. It was a bad play. And Jamal Adams probably frustrated. Be mad at yourself. Be mad at your teammates, the secondary. Don't be mad at the reporter going, yikes. So, you know, he uh, tried to to make fun of the guy's wife. I mean, that's just classless. How would you feel, Anna, if, like, I criticized a player or athlete (laughs) and they found, you know... They scoured the earth and found the least flattering photo of you <laughs> and tweeted, yikes. Um, Honestly, yeah, you'd be pissed. No, I,
9: would, I wouldn't. You'd be like, that's not
1: the photo I want. <laughs>
9: I wouldn't be happy about that. I do accept that, you know, if you're out there, if you're in the public domain, there's just a level of criticism that you're going to expect. Like, it wouldn't shock me is the thing. It's like, hey, we're out there, we're on the radio, we're tweeting, we're public, and, you know, kind of, I wouldn't appreciate it, but it's, I always think it's kind of funny when celebrities are like, oh, no, hands off. Like, you can't be critical, and I'm not saying we're celebrity. But that, it's but,
1: not even a personal thing. Like, you guys just saying, yikes, yeah, bad play. Yeah.
9: You're right, but that's, that's the thing is like, clearly there's more history there that maybe we don't know about um but in the same vein people who are playing a professional sport for a living you have to understand people in coaching positions players on the field it comes with criticism of what you do. You, What you do is a very public profession. And but so it's unreasonable that you would be upset a, a, and come back in that way. It's fair commentary. Who's, who's yeah, commenting about it.
3: It's fair. And um, the thing is, is, Jamal Adams is out of line, obviously. You can't be doing that. But at the same time, is there anything Jamal Adams can say to respond to that? Besides, now? I messed up on this play. No, now? before before, oh. before he put the yikes out he there. He needs to life. be
1: the bigger person. Like, here was the thing I thought was really disappointing today. So Pete Carroll apparently talked to him, mm-hmm. and Pete Carroll talked to reporters and said, this is not what we want to be about, okay? Mm-hmm. As a coach, he's yeah. talking to his player. He's like, we don't want this. We don't want to be part of this. He
9: doesn't want his players like yeah. Jamal Adams nope. bringing a reporter's yeah. wife. Into this is not what coach.
1: we're about. It's disrespectful, and it's not what we're about, <laughs> yeah. all right? and I think Pete Carroll's got class. You know, and I say this as a Niner fan, you know, and I'm looking, (laughs) I I may not like how he chews his gum. I may not like that his teams were good,
9: Does but I
1: have a lot of respect for Pete Carroll. Like I think, you know, the guy's a winner. So he comes out and he tells his player, he meets with his player privately and then speaks to reporters and he says, we've addressed the tweets. I don't know if it was a great decision. We don't want to be part of that. Pete Carroll putting it to rest. Then Jamal Adams comes out. Given the chance to make amends, should have said, I was frustrated. Mm-hmm. I viewed that blown coverage as deeply personal. I fired back at somebody in a way that, you know, his wife did not deserve that, and I'm sorry.
9: Mm-hmm.
1: And everyone would have moved on. No, he Instead, down. he said, when others go low, I go lower. <laughs> <laughs> but it,
3: it, I mean, that's just crazy talk. It, he's wild for doing that. But at the same time, I want to ask you this, like with Rashid, how he talks about all negativity. What are, they, what are athletes supposed to say back when they're just
1: hearing negative stuff about them all the time?
9: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: it, it, you know what? That's what the money's for. <laughs> That's part of it. Don Draper, Mad Men. Part of you being on the stage, you get the benefit of the glory of the stage. Part of you being on the stage is if you faceplant on the stage, people are going to laugh. That comes with the stage. Mm-hmm. It, you know We all accept that to some degree with our professions and our lives. Uh, You know, I'm on this stage. I could faceplant right now, you know? (laughs) Let's stick around and find out. I'm telling you, this Jamal Adams thing has me really thinking. Has me thinking about the photos we put on social media. Well, you never know, Anna. If if you post a photo, NBA player, college coach, conference commissioner, they could take that photo and be like, yikes. (laughs) Let them have at it.
9: To which I would say, bring it on.
1: That's why every time I go to post a photo of you, I clear it with you.
9: <laughs> well, because you're not a dumb man in that way. Um, Which one really, do you like better? Yeah, I know this one or this one. But that's this the one thing. It's like if somebody did that, I really you'd have to take. You would have to respond by taking all the seriousness out of it.
1: How do you do that? The right.
9: response would be to, it would be something like me responding saying, "Yeah." that was not a good hair day you know I mean it's like because you you can't let somebody have that much power over your happiness but now, didn't Jamal
1: Adams what? let the reporter have the power over his happiness absolutely like it yes it tells me something about Jamal Adams
3: as soon as Jamal Adams went there he lost the argument
1: yeah and I think you know I I, I, w- I would venture to say he's insecure and thin skinned. Based on one tweet.
9: Okay, but Yikes. let's <laughs> let's talk about the human aspect of that, though. Like, you're somebody who uh, receives a fair amount of criticism.
1: Doesn't bother me. <laughs> on Twitter. Doesn't face me.
9: I've seen some pretty uh, horrific mentions. We just talked about yesterday. Like, mean you tweets. Went on, you, yeah, you went on Seattle radio and somebody said, like, if you were on life support, they would unplug... Your life support to charge their phone. That was from like a Husky fan who was upset that you had picked against Washington. That's really mean for the Packers title. (laughs) It's
1: pretty really, really (laughs) funny though. Maybe that was Jamal Adams.
9: Maybe it was Jamal
1: Adams from Seattle.
9: So, but so so let's talk about that though, because like on a human level, you know, you can be Teflon to a certain point, right? Right, I I think like you can't sit here and say that nothing has ever gotten to you.
1: No, I can't say that, but I can say this: early in my career, I covered Indiana basketball. Okay, Bobby Knight was the coach. The fan base was um, unhinged. I then covered Notre Dame. That fan base is unhinged too. Then I covered Jerry Tarkanian, who brought a whole other set of problems. By the time then I covered the NFL, I had To. Sharpie, all that, and I had the Raiders, and Al Davis was alive. And so by the time I got through all that, it I had an understanding that the people that I was writing about and the fan bases that I was covering were, were often reacting emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of knew that when they were, like, throwing a grenade at me. Yeah. That, like, you know, they must be really feeling bad about whatever is happening on the field and the sure. court and me pointing it out. Right. And so it doesn't really get to me. Mm-hmm. It's like they pull the pin and the grenade never goes off. And so I, you know, I try, I, I make an effort to not reply, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to say I never have. <laughs> right. And I find, you know, as bad as Twitter got after it got sold, yeah. one of the benefits is I sometimes don't see the stuff right, because it's given me so much in my feed now. Like, I often will find it days later when everybody's cooled down, and I've ha- I've even had people DM me and say, I'm sorry, I tweeted something at you the other day, and I'm like, <laughs> I never saw it, you know? But I don't tell them that. I'm like, ah, it's all right, you know, don't, don't worry about it. But I also think, too, it's the easiest thing in the world to, at a distance, when you're not confronted with a human being, to lob a grenade or say something mean. Mm-hmm. And I often have run into people who will say, I really do not like you. I met you or I listened to your show. Now, you know, and so I kind of take it. I have, maybe I have thick skin. I don't know. Or maybe I just kind of understand it's part of the job. Like Jamal Adams needs to understand. It's part of the job. Part of the reason, like, part of the great part of me being in this position is I'm covering sports. It's not, I'm not holding a jackhammer. I've got a radio show. I'm writing a column. I'm at, you know, the Pac 12 championship game. And if some guy yells at me from the stands and you saw it it happened at the game somebody's yelling at me whatever i can't you know i turn around wave at him and they're middle fingering me you know whatever it's just you know it's it's part of the job it's part of the game
9: well and let's take oregon example for example like i've paid way more attention to them than i ever have in my whole life in part because i've joined you on this show and they are a perfect case study in public relations Not only did they create, like, cinematic versions of, you know, the highlight reel after each game, each victory this season, um, I was really curious to see what they would do after the Pac-12 championship loss. How soon would they come back and post something on social media about the loss? How soon would they post anything? They went quiet for, like, 24 to 48 hours on their Instagram, which is really unusual for anybody that follows them on Instagram. They post fervently, uh, especially leading up to games, especially after victories. They posted nothing for, and that is like an eternity when it comes to social media. And so the first thing that they posted after the loss was all positive stuff about Bo Nix. And him being in contention for the Heisman, him receiving, like, the academic version of, you know, some trophy, they stayed 100% positive, and it was almost like the loss never even occurred if you looked at, you know, their profile grid on Instagram.
1: That's what, they're playing, they're playing they're the hand. focused on the positive. Yeah, and they're playing the the best hand that they can find, Yes, and that they will continue to do that. I think we all need to do that. Jamal Adams needed to do that. Yes. You know, after that game, yikes, obviously bothered him, and if if he knows that he can be so easily triggered in the heat of a moment after a game, I got to think he was really embarrassed by that touchdown happening, and he got on Twitter, got on social media, and all of a sudden there was, you know, this play and a reporter he doesn't like pointing it out. And so. And
9: now what are we all talking about? We're talking about the play in which he didn't perform as well as yeah. he could have or should have. His, st-
1: his stock has dropped. Correct. In a number of ways.
9: And so it's like if you run a small business, if you are in a nonprofit, like that is a lesson for all of us. Like we can learn from, you know, how Oregon operates with their public relations. Focus on the positive because if you focus and give attention to the negative, that's what you're going to turn your spotlight onto.
1: I think it's great advice. It's great advice for everybody. And then, uh, if anybody ever does that, uh, here, here's the closest thing. Here's what really pissed me off one time. Can I say mm-hmm. something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you made can. a great point. I'm almost hesitant to kind of follow it with anything. Like I feel like we should just rat roll the credits. No, no, go. no it was good. Just it go. was really good. But one time I was at a Blazer game, and I tweeted something, and a uh, Blazer fan who was angry about what I tweeted uh, brought our kids into the conversation. Yeah. And used a derogatory term for Asian people.
9: Uh-huh, right.
1: And I couldn't believe it. Okay. Like, I couldn't believe that a grown-up with a real profile, which wasn't like a fake profile, that had like his kids and everything on his profile and biblical quote and yeah. everything, was saying, <laughs> you know, you have bleep children mm-hmm. and was using a slur. Okay. Okay? It, it kind of pissed me off. Sure. I just retweeted it. Right. The guy <laughs> removed his account like 15 minutes later because there's some crowd sourcing. There's some like, ju- there's some justice out there. Right. And I was so mad though. And yeah. I screenshotted it, whatever. And then the guy, he like deleted his account.
9: Uh-huh.
1: Be- and I think he knew. Like, I just don't understand that. Like going after someone's children or whatnot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then quoting a Bible verse on his profile. <laughs>
9: like, well, and it's like what are you really saying about yourself? You're making yourself look so much worse than any comment that you might make at, at us. And for the record, like good luck trying to offend us with that. Like really, you know?
1: No, it pissed me off. <laughs> All right, let's do the 5 at 5. Here we go.
9: The 5 at 5.
1: I almost feel like I should try to offend you between each of these. Number one.
9: Challenge accepted. Um, Speaking of uh, public relations, Deion Sanders is saying he wanted a little more privacy at Colorado in his first season with the (laughs) Um, Buffaloes. He told People Magazine, you know, you always wish that you had a little more privacy, but the same thing That makes you shine will show your blemishes. So you got to take the good with the bad. There
1: you go. That's wisdom.
9: You can't just want everyone there when the hype machine is rolling. You have to understand there's another side to this. Now, love or hate Dion, he kind of gets it.
1: Well, he's been in the spotlight. And you don't stay in the spotlight as long as he has without any kind of major blow-up, without understanding how it works. You know, it goes right back to what we were talking about in hour one with Rashade Wallace complaining about Portland being a podunk town and it was a fishbowl and, you know, he couldn't go to a club and have drinks and if we got a DUI, if we got a DUI, they were counting our drinks. Like, don't get a DUI. You're in the fishbowl. Don't you remember? But I think, you know, Coach Prime gets it. Deion Sanders gets it. I I think that's wisdom that I hope he imparts on more than just his own players. Number
9: two. So the NFL made it sound like they were going to make a big deal over this thing that happened uh, at the Eagles game. But really, they just issued some stern words. Uh, They circulated a memo to the 32 teams this morning against incidents in the future similar to the uh, security officer for the Eagles, Big Don, now become a household name involving himself in a sideline altercation with the 49ers linebacker, Dre Greenlaw. So the NFL is saying sternly from the principal's office, please ensure that all members of your game day staff understand that their role does not extend to being involved with game day altercations and they must (laughs) refrain from such involvement. You
1: should not be on TV (laughs) in a meaningful way. You're like that security guard. Should have been able to tell his friends, did you see me on TV in the background of all the plays? And they'd be like, yeah, I saw you. The camera was on you for like two seconds when that guy got the personal foul on the sideline. It shouldn't be, you were the focus, man. You you were right in the middle of everything. You can't be that. Uh, Good for the NFL. I'm glad it didn't impact the outcome of that game because you have a player on one side getting ejected and you have a security guard getting ejected. That's not fair. That's not a fair trade. If you're the Super Niners.
9: Number three. Well, John, you'll be happy about this. Jason Kelsey says he is over the debate on the Eagles' tush push. Yes. He is saying, just ban it. He says, ban it. At this point, I don't care. I'm over the discussion about it. And uh, he thinks they'll continue to have success with the normal quarterback sneak anyway. I
1: think they'd have success anyway because Jalen Hurts is is he's squatting like 700 pounds. But <laughs> I think there's an issue here. You have pointed out you think it's a branding issue.
9: I do. It
1: wasn't called the tush push that people would be more acceptable with Even
9: it. Even the brotherly shove, you know, if it was just called something else.
1: I, I think the Eagles are going to get Jalen Hurts injured. Notice how I avoided the pun there. Mm-hmm. Hurts, hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think he, I think there's gonna the end of that play will come when there's an injury. You know, some team's gonna figure out. We send a guy from the left, the guy from the right, and you know, just launch your body towards where the quarterback would be. But I don't like the play because it's it's not a traditional football play. It's a rugby play, and in college football. You see, some teams try to do it, but you also see the officials will flag you for aiding a runner. And I don't mind the play. I don't. What I do mind is when two or three players are behind Jalen Hurts, like they're pushing a bobsled down the hill in the Olympics. Like to me, and and here's the other thing: you want to legitimize this play? Run it every play for a whole game. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I, I'd be really curious. Like, how many points would the Eagles score, Stephen? If they ran the tush-push every play.
3: I feel like they would score every single drive. They would score a (laughs) touchdown.
1: So what are we doing here? They're doing you a favor when they throw a pass. It's on
9: the chopping block.
1: Number four.
9: This will become, I think, a Saturday Night Live episode because there's been so much chatter about it. Trevor Lawrence is laughing a little and explaining why he didn't use a cart after suffering an, uh, an ankle injury. So he sprains his ankle, and the cameras captured him slowly limping to the locker room with help from two employees. But this has been the talk of social media, because people are like, why didn't he take a cart back to the locker room? He said today, we talked about getting a cart. I was going to get a cart. I was standing there on the sideline, tunnels right there. I just wanted to get off the field. I didn't know what was going on with my ankle. Once he got to the tunnel, he said, this is a pretty long walk. <laughs> but I was already there. They asked again if I wanted a cart. I'm like, no, we'll just, we'll make it the whole way there. <laughs> so it's like he wasn't quite aware of what he was taking on for the walk. And he was defending the organization, saying, yeah, we, we've got carts. I I was the one who chose not to take one.
1: They shouldn't have asked him. They should have just brought the cart. But that's kind of funny. <laughs> we've all done it. Usually at Disneyland. You know, oh, we can walk. We're we're in, you know, the Minnie mini Mouse, yeah. Row D. That's where we parked. It wasn't that far when we came in. Take the shuttle. <laughs> Always take the shuttle, Trevor Lawrence. Number five.
9: had uh, Metcalf explaining this cute story uh, about learning sign language. So the Seahawks wide receiver... Uh, Made headlines Because after his first Touchdown he went into the end zone and signed in American Sign Language Standing on business. I don't know what that looks like, but he did it and he did it well And he explained that he took one ASL course in college a summer course. He really enjoyed it and He's always trying to exercise his mind and learn something new and now he's seeing it ...as a valuable way to bring awareness to the American Sign Language community. He still talks to his professor every week on Zoom.
1: This is a, uh... Is he signing to the yes. professor? That's pretty cool. Well,
9: he signs with the professor, yeah. so he learns something new every time they talk, and then he's bringing light to a community that he didn't know felt unseen.
1: Uh, it, this is one of these things where, you know, there's a little bit of shade there. He's sign, signing about, you know, beating a guy on a for a touchdown, but then... It's good. There's a good side to this. Yeah. So this is kind of the opposite of what Jamal Adams did. (laughs) You know, they're in the same team, dressing not far from each other in the locker room. And one guy is winning and the other guy is in the basement. Pretty good. What do you make of the sign language? You know, are they going to have to get a sign language official to make sure he's not trash talking? (laughs) You know what I mean? What do you make of it, Stephen? Yeah,
3: I mean, you're going to have to be careful with uh, what people are saying and stuff because, uh, no, I mean, people like me, I have no idea what, what people are signing. So it could, I could feel like it's something nice, but at the same time it could be something. It's kind of like when people get tattoos and they don't know what they actually mean and then they find out that they mean
9: something oh, different. Oh, oh. You know? oh, I love that. Because
1: Anna, yeah. Anna can read yes. Mandarin and I've Chinese point, symbols I've pointed, speak Mandarin. I've
9: pointed that out to more than one person that the thing that they got tattooed in Chinese on their arm that they think means something really cool doesn't mean that at all.
1: That doesn't actually mean <laughs> warrior. It means where is the restroom. <laughs> what kind of tattoo should I get if I got a Chinese symbol?
9: You should, well, no, you should just not get a Chinese symbol. Let's start there. Yeah, but
1: it kind of would look cool. No,
9: no, it's what just is- cliche.
1: Yikes. Yeah, Yikes. <laughs>
9: Well-timed there. Steve.
1: Yeah. Chinese symbol for yikes. Uh, no
9: offense to anybody. That how did you has, learn? Too how, late for you.
1: How but... did you learn Chinese symbols?
9: Uh, My mother beating me.
1: <laughs> like, really?
9: Yeah, no. Like, bribing. Combination of bribing me with Oreo cookies and ice cream and beating me. So, yeah.
1: When did you do this?
9: Mm, between the ages of uh, three and 15.
1: Uh, and uh, that seems like it would take some time to learn.
9: Yeah, because it's just memory. I mean, with, like, you know, tens of thousands of characters in the language, you're just writing characters over and over and over and over again. It's just committing it to memory. And,
1: and you're pretty good with it right now. Like, what grade level could you mm, read at? I
9: wouldn't say I'm good. I've dropped back to about a third, second grade level. Okay. Like, I might be able to barely understand a newspaper.
1: But Well, that's good enough. Yeah. Well, the thing that was is amazing, and... The kids and I have seen this in person, and I've seen this up close in Beijing when during the Olympics, is when you go into fully speaking Mandarin. Uh-huh. Like, we were at breakfast the other day at a place called Sonny's Diner, okay? And the owner, Sonny, is Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. And you're Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. And she came to the table, and when you guys found out you were both Taiwanese, <laughs> you started talking. Yeah. And the kids and I, the two girls and I looked at each other and we started dying laughing. <laughs> they were just, they were they were laughing so hard they were doubled over. Because it's alarming to see this person. You forget this person has this whole other language yeah. that they can speak. And you go right into it.
9: Yeah.
1: It's okay. Sad. Can you say up next, we're going to talk about the Oregon Ducks with Spencer McLaughlin. Mm.
9: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Woman ten Oregon Ducks, With Spencer
1: <laughs> That's that? it. Yeah, that's all it is. It's
9: pretty efficient.
1: I thought it was going to be like a long thing. I was sitting back, my yeah, arms were folded. I was going
9: to talk for like sixty seconds. Yeah,
1: because I don't know what you guys were talking about, but it was like sudden this, this realization between two people that they had something in common. And you guys both launched into speaking about, you know, whatever you guys were talking yeah, like about. Probably you,
3: be, you assume it's something nice they're talking about, but they could have just been making fun of, like, every single person in the room. You'd have no idea.
1: <laughs> Why did you marry this guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what she always said to her. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Leave it here. Spencer McLaughlin is next. Are you watching the transfer portal? Are you keeping tabs on who's jumping into the portal, who's coming out of the portal? If you're an Oregon State fan, you're probably – uh You know, watching Aiden Childs and DJ Uyangalele get into the portal. And you're now probably watching, as you see, some of the uh, defensive players. Oregon State's top two tacklers from the season, Easton Mascarenas Arnold and Achille Arnold, have both jumped into the transfer portal. So uh, that's a blow on the defensive side of the ball for Oregon State. But I think Oregon State knows that it is playing a tenuous game this offseason. Oregon... Has a bowl game against Liberty. He's out trying to recruit. Dan Lanning recruiting. Bo Nix out picking up awards. Here to talk about it, Spencer McLaughlin. You can read his work at 750thegame.com. You can find him on the Locked on Ducks, Locked on Pac-12 podcast. I saw him at the Pac-12 championship game. He was happy to be there. Is that your first title game?
2: Uh, It's the first title game I've been to up in a press box. I have been to a couple other ones just as a spectator and observer, shall we say. So when you remove my disappointment as an Oregon fan, it was a pretty cool experience.
1: Give me an idea. Um, If we can look back, Oregon loses that game. Biggest factor in the game in your mind?
2: I think the inability to control the line of scrimmage, you know, really on both sides. Oregon didn't try. uh, I, I didn't feel that they tried super hard to establish a running game early on, but then a few times they did. There wasn't really anything there. I mean the last two times those teams had met Oregon, you know, hadn't won the games, but gosh almighty they'd run the ball incredibly well and Washington's defense, they were just playing a lot better and they tackled really, really well in space. I thought their secondary brought down Bucky Irving and a couple other Oregon players in the open field in ways that they just hadn't in the previous meetings and they, they played well but, you know, Oregon couldn't pressure Michael Penix consistently enough and if you give him a bunch of time, they're gonna throw the ball deep down the field and those receivers are going to make plays, and then on the other side, Oregon just couldn't, you know, get the ground game going, and so they couldn't control the ball, and their defense was on the field, and things just kind of spiraled there in the early going. They stabilized for a little bit, but it ultimately, um, the the slow start is is what I thought did it.
1: I want to get your brain on this. Everybody talking about the possibility of Dylan Gabriel, the Oklahoma quarterback, going to Oregon. Here's what Josh Pate said about Dylan Gabriel.
2: Dylan Gabriel in the portal. This was not a surprise. I think publicly maybe it was. Oklahoma fans weren't shocked by this. There have been rumblings. Dylan Gabriel was the starting quarterback for Oklahoma this past year. Uh, Put up good numbers. Nearly a 70% completion percentage guy. 30 touchdowns, 6 picks. And uh, had a big game against Texas. And so he's in the portal now. It looks like he's going to go to Oregon. I think there's a visit set up this weekend. Bo Nix is out right after he goes and fulfills his obligations as a Heisman Trophy finalist. He's he's out. And um strong betting favorite that Dylan Gabriel ends up in
1: Eugene, Oregon. Do you agree with that? And if so, what do you think of Dylan Gabriel?
2: Well, everything that I've seen and heard as well is that he's, uh, you know, certainly the the most likely Oregon quarterback for 2024 at this point in time hasn't been uh, solidified just yet, hasn't actually happened yet. But, you know, I, I like him. I don't know that I'm as enamored with him as everybody else. Uh, you know, he's a pretty little guy. I think he's like five, I think he's listed at 5'11, but I think he's probably a like 5'9, 5'10-ish um you know he can disappear in the pocket a little bit but he makes good plays from the pocket he uh, I, I think is usually an accurate thrower of the football he's got good mobility he's got a decent arm you know he ran plenty of RPO stuff at Oklahoma I think that you know roughly fits what Will Stein wants to do as the coordinator at Oregon assuming he's there next year which I, I presume he will be so you know, I, I, I like him. Uh, if if I had my choice, as an Oregon fan, I'd take Cam Ward at Washington State. Uh, there are just a couple elements to Ward's game that I like more than Gabriel's. But I think both guys are capable of coming to Oregon and and having success. And I think that he's viewed as one of the top portal targets uh, at the quarterback position for for a reason. You know, just personal preference. to Me, I've watched both guys play a good amount. Certainly, Cam Ward a little more. Uh, maybe that's why I like him more. But Um, You know, I I think he's got to have some some good weapons, but I I think he could come to Oregon and help him compete in the Big Ten.
1: Give me an idea. Is there someone on the roster, though, that you would like to see compete for that job?
2: Well, I mean, it's Ty Thompson, right? I mean, you you just get put in this precarious spot now as a fan because especially at the quarterback position, and I'm going to write about this at 750 the game tomorrow. Like, you, you can't. Get attached to the old way of doing things. I I think that from a recruiting standpoint, you just don't always have the time to to operate on the schedule of a young quarterback. Think about Justin Herbert, for instance. As a true freshman, you know he took over for Dakota Prukop in the midst of a bad season. If that season had gone well, I, I don't think they would have made the switch to Justin Herbert. But He was capable as a young freshman, but he also made a lot of freshman mistakes. I was at that Cal game down in Berkeley in 2016. He threw for, like, 1,600 yards, but he also had a few costly interceptions because he just wasn't quite reading the defense correctly all the time. And Oregon was in a position to go with him and endure those growing pains because they were in a reset spot. But now in the age of the transfer portal and the way Lanning's recruited and the way he coaches and the way he's running the program right now, it, it looks like Oregon just can't afford to wait. And Ty Thompson might be capable of starting for the Ducks and winning games. But is he going to be as refined as Dylan Gabriel? Almost certainly not. I don't know how he could be. And I just think that college football, especially the quarterback position, is just a year-to-year proposition. And unless you're a rebuilding team, it's just not that likely that you're going to go with a high school kid and develop him because you feel like, well, we got to – we We, we got to go right now. Like we got to compete, and it's just all in on every single year. And then when that season ends, you reset and and you go all in for the next year as well. It feels like the days of a two and three year plan, you know for for an elite program like Oregon, it feels like those have gone by the wayside.
1: Give me an idea because we're talking about a quarterback, But you know we start the conversation by saying that the problem was the offensive and defensive line. We all know it's a quarterback-centric game, but can Oregon get better in the trenches? And will you know? Can they make the quarterback matter?
2: Well, the quarterback's going to matter, and I, I think that it's going to matter. You know, even more how Oregon does in the trenches because even though I think Dylan Gabriel is good, I do not think that he's capable of being Bo Nix. I, I think he's a guy who can you know, be a solid quarter. I mean, Oklahoma's a 10-2 and two football team in, in the Big 12 this year, and I don't think the Big 12 is the greatest conference in America, certainly, but I also watched them go toe-to-toe with Quinn Ewers at Texas, and I like Quinn Ewers, and I, I watched them, you know, lead a game-winning drive, and he showed some real stones in that moment, and I, I think for the trenches, it, it's going to be, you know, even more important. It, it's, it's not as if uh it, it, it's not as if oregon wasn't good in the trenches I, I i really think they just had an off game i mean at what point in the season were we talking about oregon's inability to run the football their inability to pressure the quarterback it wasn't a problem all year washington's just really good they had a couple of tackles who are outstanding they have a young center who's good and they had a really good game plan for dealing with oregon's pressure with the max protection looks and Oregon just didn't have an answer, and they didn't have the guys on the back end who could cover. I, I frankly, you know, even though there's going to be a lot of lost talent, especially along that defensive line, I think the biggest need for Oregon is in the secondary.
1: Spencer McLaughlin with us. You can read his work at 750thegame.com. Also, Locked on Ducks, Locked on Pac-12 Podcasts. Spencer, the playoff is still four teams. It's not working. Florida State gets left out, expanding to twelve. You and I have texted about this. You still don't like the 12-team playoff. What is your issue? What's wrong with you? What do you need a 12-team playoff for?
2: Goodness gracious. I mean, look, I'm in the camp that Florida State should not have made the playoffs. I'm also in the camp that if Jordan Travis had stayed healthy, that they would have been undefeated. They would have been in the playoffs. And Alabama, based on where the Crimson Tide were ranked and their loss to Texas, would have been left out. And I would have been okay with all of that. You know, I understand why people want the 12-team playoffs. I can't wait to have debates about a 9-3 Iowa team versus an 11-1 Tulane out of the American. I can't, I can't wait for that. I think that's, that's going to be some riveting stuff as for who should get an at-large berth and whatnot. But college football is the greatest sport in the world, John, in my view. It's my favorite one to watch because there is no sport, and this includes the NFL unquestionably, that creates the week-to-week individual game urgency that college football does. When you expand the playoff, you remove that urgency. So take anybody listening to this right now. How many of you are Michigan or Ohio State fans? I'm going to go out on a limb and say hardly any, if any of you at all. When you tune into that Michigan-Ohio State game, it's a fun football game to watch. What makes it an extra level of exciting? You know that the loser is not getting into the playoff. Each of the last three years, that has served as an elimination game for Ohio State, barring some massive help they get elsewhere. And of course, they got it last year with USC losing to Utah, which is another great example. USC would have been in the playoff anyway, so who cares if they lose to Utah in the Pac-12 championship game? And then Utah would have lost, you know, what, three games at that point and still been into the college football playoff, and you're, you're just devaluing the impact of a loss. The entire country, at some level, roots for Alabama to lose. And so when they do, it's a big deal because it affects their playoff hunt. We were watching the Iron Bowl this year. Why? Because if Bama loses, they're out of the playoff hunt. And that affects everything else. College football basically has, as a sport right now, and they're going away from it with the 12-team playoff, a 13-week-long double elimination playoff. That's what they have. And there's no other sport in the world that has that And they're going away from that, and I think it's primarily financially driven. And that's why my opposition to it, even though it's going to benefit Oregon and would have many times over the past few years, I think that the sport is so great because it's different than every other sport in the world. And I think that that going away is sad.
1: Different is good. That said, in the NFL, the Niners have three losses. Eagles have two. The Chiefs have four. We all know losses sometimes happen. Why should it end your season?
2: Because that's what creates the best television product, is urgency. Is You have to win every single week. The standard that is held to college football teams, their feet are to the fire every single week. And to your point, you don't have that in the NFL. The 49ers have got three losses, and we all know how they're still going to go out there and win the Super Bowl. So when I watch their games, I'm not watching up with the same sort of of edge-of-my-seat intensity just as a general sports fan that I do when I watch Alabama play Auburn. Like Kirk Street and Chris Fowler are jumping up and down in the booth. You know why? Because they know that Alabama just saved their hopes of going to the playoff and winning a national championship. It's on the line right then and there. There is no other sport that creates that sort of urgency and drive and excitement in the regular season, including and especially the NFL. And I think that when people make that sort of comparison and say, well, the NFL does this, my response is I don't want it to be like the NFL. I want it to be college football, and it's always about – every individual week, and I think that the four-team format is more than sufficient to get us a worthy champion every single year.
1: No, I think I think this year is a great example of why, you know, you had five conferences, four champions, and I think we're going to see uh, the college teams in the 12-team playoff. You're going to see twos, threes, fives. You're going to see some of those seeds winning big games. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have that debate when it happens, but now let's look at the four teams. Sugar Bowl, you got Washington, you got Texas. Rose Bowl, you got Alabama, Michigan. Who are your winners?
2: It's hard to pick against Washington, isn't it? Like It's it's really hard to pick against Washington because all they have done is just continue to win football games. And Michigan is in that class as well. But I, I, I think that Washington, you know, in a rematch from the Alamo Bowl from last year, which is truly a rematch, by the way. I think that there are like 27 and 31 players respectively on Washington and Texas' teams that were in that Alamo, Alamo Bowl from from last season, I, I look at that one and say that's a shootout, and I think the other one is a slugfest. I, I don't think there's any chance that Michigan or Bama win by 10 or more points. I think one offense could get hot in the Texas-Washington game and and beat the other team by, by 10 or more points, and it could come down to turnovers or situations or anything like that. But I, I, I have a hard time picking against Washington with the way they're playing, with the way Penix looked. He's, he's playing in a dome once again, and, and that clearly suited him very well in, in Las Vegas against the Ducks. So I, I think that Texas' corners are not going to be good enough to hold up against uh, the Washington receivers. But give me Alabama over, over Michigan. Uh, I, I, I am not a J.J. McCarthy fan. I, I think he's fine. He's, I think mean, he's capable but I always thought the early season Heisman hype was ridiculous I think I was proven right in that particular regard and I think that Alabama I mean just, just say it out loud you know are you going to pick against Nick Saban in a year in which the entire college football world not the entire world but a lot of people in the world wanted to write him off and say oh no he, he doesn't have it anymore he's lost his touch he's going the way of Bill Belichick and Greg Popovich I mean he just <laughs> He he's, has been, like, if you don't think he hears that sort of stuff, I think he does, and I think he's, I think he's coming with a vengeance. So um, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take Washington and Alabama to win.
1: There you go. Washington and Alabama in the national title game. You want to pick your winner now?
2: No, not yet. I need to see how they, go, how they play in those, in those semifinals first.
1: There you go. Spencer McLaughlin, I appreciate you joining us, even if you're wrong about the 12-team playoff. We'll debate it. We'll debate it when it happens. Appreciate you, man.
2: Yeah, anytime, John. Appreciate it.
1: There he goes. Read his work at 750thegame.com. I like the 12-team playoff. I think we need a larger pool of playoff teams. We're not asking college football to put half the teams in the playoff like, you know, the uh, NBA or sometimes other sports do. Uh, we're asking for, you know, more than enough to capture the best team in America. And we're asking for and probably getting with a 12-team playoff, the end of the controversy. What will be the controversy moving forward? It'll be, all right, who's in the top four? Who who gets the first round bye? Who gets the home field? It'll be that stuff. It won't be they got screwed, they got left out, you know. And, by the way, if you're a conference champion, it, you're going to the playoff. And, you know, it's not the NCAA tournament. It doesn't quite have the beauty and the poetry and the symmetry of the NCAA tournament. It's a beautiful thing, but
3: it's needed. I'm with Spencer, though. Isn't 12 too much? should it be like eight?
1: In most years, I think we'll be seeing a little bit of, ooh, did that team, be- did Liberty belong in there? You know, they'll have those kinds of conversations. Who was the 12th team in? But in this year, there's eight teams that could win this thing. They, You know, you're going to have to, if you're five through 12, play it off. So at least we get a chance to see them. You know, it's... It does allow the games, the, the outcomes to be settled on the field, and maybe we see a twelve seed win someday, or we see him win a game. I don't know, but I think you have to cast the net wide enough. Baseball does it, the NFL does it, NCAA tournament does it. You cast the net wide enough to be sure that you are going to capture the champion. Give give everybody who deserves a chance a chance, and so I think twelve is the number. I would have been okay with eight. But I think, you know, in this year it would have worked. Most years it probably works. But I think 12 is a good number. And it gives us another week of football. Leave it here. been a good show today. I thought yesterday's show was good. Yesterday's show took a really interesting twist in the 5 o'clock hour. I don't know if you were here for it. But we, were, uh, we ended up on the subject of incarceration and uh, ended up playing a couple of minutes of my interview, uh, my prison interview with James Rogers Sr., Then we had a guy who called in because, of course, who had robbed like 14 banks and gone to prison and shared his experience. And then after the show, I heard from a number of people who had either been incarcerated or were are involved in the uh, justice system or had worked in um, in a prison or a jail and you know they were uh, all offering sort of their insight and their input i love when the show takes a turn like that steven uh you were here for it i i kind of i kind of just go with it and i thought it was a good finish to yesterday's show i didn't you know it didn't dominate the whole show but it was Certainly the last 20 minutes or so.
3: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, I, ha- I had never heard any of the Rogers interview. Uh, you know, still, I'm you know not new on the show, but relatively new when you did that interview. So i had never heard <laughs> that. So that was really fascinating to me, um, just hearing him talk about his story and then the caller as well. Like, it just resonated with him as well to talking about, you know, bank robberies, which is just, you know, one of those things where it's like, I have no idea what that's about. I had no idea how I would go, how I would go about it, or like what makes me do that and that type of decision. So, yeah, I mean, it may it, it's one of those things where it makes you think, just kind of about your life and what you know what's going on and um, how things are just a little bit different between you and a lot of other people.
1: Yeah, the decisions that you make as well, and you know that James Rogers interview in the jailhouse in two thousand nine. Um, you know, I I after the show went on to the Texas Department of Corrections website to kind of look him up and see where he was he was released so he is out of prison and i hope living a good life and i hope in contact with his kids and i hope uh you know doing all the things that he said in the interview with me that he was going to do i talked to him for about an hour that day and it was a weird it was a surreal moment cuz i think we started talking about prisons in general by the the sound of the gates that closes behind you the clang of the gates like it's just like the movies like when you go in And, you know, they close the iron gate behind you. That sound is jarring. And I know when I went to leave, you know, I said goodbye to James Rogers and I go to leave the prison. And I was just like, they're going to let me out, right? They're going to let me (laughs) And I got to the parking lot. They let me out. I was like, uh, I uh, don't wish that on anyone. And like the caller said, there are some people who need to be in prison. And. My hope would be for the others that are in there that there's a rehabilitation going on because that's what I think what a prison should be. Like for the the offenders who are in there for nonviolent offenses who aren't a danger to the community, uh, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for people who have had issues with substance abuse or mental illness maybe or um, just made terrible decisions when they were younger to kind of – educate and mature and grow and develop as human beings. and I think that's that would be my hope. but I don't blame any of the correctional officers who reached out to me after yesterday's show and said, you know, every inmate's got a story. nobody's guilty. you know, hurt them all in 15 years of being a correctional officer like you know I bless you if you are working in in the correctional uh, system because uh, I can't think that's an easy job to have and an easy thing to do. And I've got questions for the correctional officers who are listening as well. Like, I would love to hear stories from them as well. But I, it's not a sports thing, I, you know? And I know, that, like, the connection to James Rogers was his sons, James and Jaquiz, you know, both played college football in the state of Oregon and then went on to do good things in the NFL and coaching and other places. And, you know, I love those kids. Those two kids were fun to watch. They were a joy to meet and have on the show. And it was... Um, it was neat to tell their dad's story, but it wasn't a happy story. It was a very complicated story, and frankly, rooted in the middle of that story, it was just the fact that, like you know, sixty-five percent of the people who are incarcerated, especially men, have a father who is not in the picture or incarcerated himself, and. That became evident as, you know, I had that conversation with James Rogers, Sr., and, you know, he had five siblings, and three of them served prison time, including his father. And so it was a, there's a generational thing there where it's almost like you got to break the cycle. you got to break out of it. And I think we all, to some extent, are dealing with stuff, family of origin stuff, comes up all the time. I told Anna this today, and I wish I would have brought this up when she was here. This morning when the girls went off to school, our two youngest daughters, the oldest daughters away at college, the two youngest daughters were in the best mood, and not every school day is that way. Steven, you know this. 100%. Like, there's there's some days, right? You 100%. Know? Yeah,
3: there's some days where they, the kids do not want to get ready for school. <laughs>
1: yeah. This was one of the best days. The girls were, like, twirling around. They were laughing with each other. They were making fun of me. They went out the door just laughing, big smiles on their faces, and I said to Anna, like, that's what I want for their childhood. That's the that's what I want for them. And, you know, and, and frankly for me, I didn't go off to school that way. I went off to school, I was a little anxious about what was going on, what was happening, you know, what was going to happen at school today. And, you know, I was kind of lost in my own head a little bit. And so I'm glad the kids, you know, went off that way. And I try to get them out the door like that every day, but it doesn't always work. All right, make sure you tune in tomorrow. we got another great show for you. Listen to the podcast. Read me at johnconzano.com. The Bald faced Truth is out.